All right. Um, good afternoon, everyone. I'm trying to get my co-host up here. Um, so, sister, um, good afternoon, um, Dr. Williams. So glad to have you here. And there I have my co-host. Um, I'm so glad that you're here and you were able to join us right at the beginning. I know initially you thought that um, it would be a little later in the day, but I am like super excited and I think the members of the Advocacy Arena um, community are as well. So I want to take an opportunity to welcome everyone back to Advocacy Arena's weekly live chat, where we gather to inform and inspire civic engagement each Monday at 1 p.m. Eastern, 12 p.m. Central Time. And of course, today we're here, February 26th, the last Monday in February, Black History Month. And we are going to make some noise and get in good trouble uh, and do what we can to uplift our civic engagement. And today, I am so honored and happy to have um, Dr. LaRotha Williams with us as our featured guest. Um, so um, next, I want to give my co-host an opportunity to say hello to the room as it populates and it will continue to populate if people come in to say hello and then um, I am going to allow um, Professor Williams to introduce um, to say hello and introduce him himself. Um, I want to um, tell you a little bit about him um, before he does that. So, so sister, good afternoon, my dear. How are you? Um, glad to be back here amongst um, our good trouble friends. So, giving you an opportunity to say hello. Good afternoon, everybody. Um, thank you so much for giving me the opportunity here to sit in your co-host spot. Um, I hope everybody's doing well on this last Monday of Black History Month. And I'm excited about today's uh, space. Uh, I can't wait. And there's quite a bit going on. Uh, there's a primary here in Michigan tomorrow. Um, I know that it is uh, just a primary. However, we have uh, some uncommitted campaigns going on today, or and well, have been going on for several weeks, but really a big push uh, before tomorrow's vote. And it is a discouragement for people to choose uh, vice president. I mean. President Biden and Vice President Kamala Harris as the Democratic nominee. So I'm hoping that the uncommitted are so uncommitted that they don't even make it to the polls and that, uh, you know, we see Biden take a very strong lead. Um, I don't believe in this uncommitted um, strategy at all. I think that it will be... Um, more detrimental than it is uh, helpful to those voices who uh, think that they are just taking a strong stand um, on on an issue that they feel very strongly about, which is the uh, the Gaza conflict that is happening halfway across the world. So we'll have to just stay tuned. Even uh, Gretchen Whitmore, our governor here. Uh, she refused to even, uh, you know, give any type of idea of what that might look like tomorrow 
or at the final count for everything. And I'm in agreement with her. I think we have to sit tight and we do have to um, take it day at a time. Um, We have to realize also that some of these voters who um, are carrying the torch for the uncommitted um, campaign, we're likely not going to be uh, Biden supporters to begin with. They had already decided that the liberal views of inclusiveness um, of all people, regardless of sexual orientation um, or identity, um, were an issue. So we're, we're seeing some of that. So I will keep you guys tuned, um, uh, tuned into that. But th- th- more importantly, I think that it's, uh, it's beneficial to us to realize that um, the Republican Party is very much uh, in disarray here. So um, I hope that that continues. And I know that that probably sounds bad, but I do hope it does continue. Um, and until they can write themselves, I don't see them as having a, a, a strong message to compete against uh, what the Biden-Harris administration has been able to accomplish, not just across the country, but more respectively, even here in the state of Michigan, uh, in support of Michigan's business uh, infrastructure, unions, and um, clean energy. So, and moving past that, there is other there is lots of other um, union news. Kroger, there's a Kroger-Albertson's merger that is currently taking place. And just before the space, I did see that the FTC is uh, moving to block that. However, there was a, a very strongly worded um, opinion piece about how it will affect the union workers here. Um, of course, Kroger is saying, for those of you that don't don't understand or don't uh, have a Kroger or Albertsons in your area, these are our two major uh, these are two major grocery stores here in Michigan. Um, the issue would be that a merger is complicated because there's so much um, overlap. You could have a Kroger on one side of the street, and you could have um, a store that is owned by Albertsons directly across the street. So. Uh, there's a big fear that this will affect, um, obviously, jobs, union jobs. And uh, so we will have to wait and see how that plays out as well. Um, Delta workers are asking the CEO, Ed Bastian, to stay out of union organizing efforts and to sign a neutrality agreement. Uh, So far, it has been unsuccessful, but um, that is what they are hoping will happen. And the Biden campaign is seeing, um, is encouraging and and, uh, recognizing that their uh, campaign staff plans to organize um, with the campaign workers guild. I guess this has happened before with Democratic campaign workers and the Biden campaign leadership is openly welcoming this new um, organizing effort. I will put these stories in the nest in just a moment. I'm sorry that I didn't get them up there quicker. Another big story is that the Teamsters um, will be, again, playing footsie with the uh, Republican Party. 
Um, they will be attending their 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 national convention. So, you know, there have been some analysts that say that regardless, they really feel like labor um, is definitely going to side um, and support Joe Biden. However, we have to look the, and realize that historically, Teamsters have backed Reagan and George H.W. Bush. Um, they've also met with Robert Kennedy Jr., Cornell West, and Dean Phillips. Now, they do have plans to meet with Biden in March. So we shall see how that all shakes out. But I don't think that we can have any definitive idea of who they plan on endorsing until after um, that March meeting at last, uh, I mean, at, at, at best. I also want to point out that O'Brien, Sean O'Brien, the president of the Teamster, he's not what they call a far left um, labor leader. I don't know why they said far left as if that was describing the presidency um, or actions of even our president, Joe Biden, because I don't believe that Biden is far left. I believe that he is um, just a strong Democrat that believes in progressive uh, legislation that benefits all people, whether they're voting for him or not voting for him, whether um, uh, they consider themselves progressives, liberals, or blue, proud blue, or you know, blue dog, and all of that. I don't, I don't even, sometimes I believe those monikers are more hurtful than helpful. Um, but they did point out that O'Brien isn't a far left labor leader and uh, believe that his uh, recent actions are, is him trying to build credibility within his own union's rank and file, which they say is between 40 and 46 percent Republican, um, so that when he does come out if he does come out and endorse Joe Biden, he can say that um, he gave both sides a fair shake. You know, um, it's important to remember also that during the crises of uh, the Teamsters uh, trying to deal with their, their troubled pension plan, uh, the former president did nothing to assist them at all. But of course, once Joe Biden got in office, uh, he actually did help them solve the issue. So I hope that plays a role. Um, it would be a big disappointment to see them uh, turn away from Joe Biden, especially after so much support has been given to unions across the country and for many different uh uh, issues. Um, it, it would just, it to me, it would be like shooting yourself in the foot. But right. we shall see. Like you said, we can't, we can't, uh, we can't uh, anticipate until we actually know. So that's all I have on uh, the union and uh, Detroit right now. So I will turn it back over to you and we can get started. All right. Well, thank you so much. We always appreciate your um, union updates and uh, giving us a rundown of the things that are going on in Michigan, a very important state, as as they all are. But um, there are um, a lot of things going on that make it uh, very critical for us to keep an eye on and understand. And again, feel blessed and fortunate to have you as my standing co-host to always give us insights into that as well. 
So, you know, normally uh, we would um, be talking about some of the top um, issues and, and, and topics that are going on, but we do have a featured um, guest here today um, that we um, are so excited about, um, a professor at um, TSU, um, uh, Tennessee State University. Dr. LaRotha Williams, and I see that he was able, this is his first time in a space, so I'm glad that he made it, and I may need to kind of help him navigate um, the um, tools, uh, but I think he's figured it out. I just want to highlight a couple of, uh, a few stories, and um, we will pick back up on these. I will be posting about them on my timeline, but because he's here, I want to um, get started. I don't know what kind of time he has today, so I want to take advantage of him while he is here, and then we can go back to our other topics um, in the news. But of course, you know that uh, the Supreme Court is hearing a case today that is, um, because of uh, it's around social media out of Texas and Florida. We had the South Carolina primaries over the weekend, and I don't think there were any surprises by any of the um, folks who are tuned in uh, to how that came out. Um, the former guy won, and um, we also had some disturbing stories coming out of Tennessee and Missouri this weekend about the extreme abortion bans that have um, been instituted. Our state is one of those that has no exceptions whatsoever. And uh, thankfully, Governor uh, Newsom out of California has done a tremendous ad uh, that really, I think, speaks to the heart and, and helps us to emotionally tap into the dangers that these things perform, um, you know, um, hold for us. Also, the former guy was speaking in South Carolina before a black um, conservative forum, and it was totally disgusting. And we'll pick back up on it. There's been a lot of commentary around it. The uh, House is going to be coming back in order um, uh, or, or con reconvening because of some some important things, one being the government shutdown. And we pray that they're able to, um, you know, keep that from happening. And of course, uh, the U Ukraine funding, which is very critical. And we know the former guy has put his finger on the scale where that's concerned um, and, you know, the border issues. Um, so a lot to talk about there. And then Russia finally turned over the body of Navalny to his mother. And um, we're still dealing with the Israeli-Hamas conflict. And um, Bibi Netanyahu was on Face the Nation, and he has weighed in on what uh, his um, vision is for things afterwards. And um, it is not a two-state solution, but again, we'll continue talking about that. And then something else um, that is just kind of um, frightening but not um, surprising that Florida has a measles outbreak in um, Fort Lauderdale. And their top uh, surgeon, uh, medical person there, is actually telling kids, it's okay and uh, parents, it's okay to send your kids to school. I mean, something, um, a disease that was eradicated um, is now proliferating because of anti-science philosophy that has been allowed to uh, proliferate and increase, you know, with the, the COVID um, 
virus and, and pandemic, all of the ideology around that. So, uh, Professor Williams, I am um, so happy to have you here, and we are going to get started if you're ready. Um, I did uh, send you like some screenshots. If you see um, the um, heart icon down there, that is um, like when you t uh, click on that, you will see emojis and um, you can use it to, you know, express emotion or to raise your hand, but you are co-host, so you are free to speak whenever you um, want. Um, you are our guest. So if you're ready, I would like to give just a brief introduction and then uh, get our conversation started. I know uh, a lot of people are very excited about you being here, and I, um, I, I would like to get started if you're ready. Okay. And so let me tell you a little bit about our wonderful uh, guest today. Dr. LaRotha Williams Jr. is a scholar of African-American Civil War and Reconstruction and Public History at Tennessee State University. He also teaches courses that explore Civil War and Reconstruction history, African-Americans in public memory, Black politicians, civil rights, 20th century Black intellectuals, African Americans in Tennessee, slavery and emancipation in Middle Tennessee. Since his arrival in Nashville, he has served on boards of um, the Friends of Fort Neagley and the Metro Historical Commission Foundation. Um, Dr. Williams is a native of Tallahassee, Florida. He earned his Ph.D. Um, at, uh, there at Florida State University, and he also served on um, the uh, historic as a historic site specialist in the state of Florida. He has written about African American politicians during Reconstruction, Freedmen Education, and post Civil War South, and uh, the administrative responses to student activism at um, HBCUs during the Black Freedom Struggle. So I think that gives you an overview of who we are honored to have in our space today. So I would like to give you an opportunity to say hello um, and see if I left anything out. Um, and we're just going to kind of go with the flow. If you have something that um, you would kind of like to to share with us to start out, I have some questions that I hope will uh, kind of get people um the conversation going, and I'm sure a lot of other people will have questions here because I know we have a lot of history nerds in the audience today. So, um, Dr. Williams, welcome. Well, first, thank you for the honor of um, being in your space with all of you publicly minded citizens today. I am um, always looking for better or more effective ways to to teach history, to talk about history. And, and this is one of the areas that I haven't explored. So I um, quite as kept, um, you didn't have to do a hard sell to get me on here. I was going to come. Um, but yes, I um, my, my work deals primarily with well, since I came to Tennessee State, my work deals primarily with memory, but also um, amnesia. I'm, I'm interested in what we remember, what we forget, and more importantly, who determines what 
has value. I um one of my works that I would be remiss if I didn't mention was I, I co-edited a book with um um a, a a professor named Ami Thurber called um I'll Take You There, a history of Nashville's public sites. And for those of y'all, and I see one of my former students in the audience, Brittany, who is from Memphis, um, when we were trying to figure out a title for the book, um, we came up with I'll Take You There. And immediately, you know, for those of y'all that like your R&B, when you hear I'll Take You There, you think of, you know, the staple singers, Memphis. And, and um, it's like, well, you might need to change the title. And it's like, no, with respect to the brothers and sisters out there, we were looking at it from the aspect of, um, you know, you come to a new place and you ask somebody for directions and you tell them and they still don't know, you say, okay, well, I'll take you there. So what it was, was an effort to compel people to go to spaces in this city that they might not ordinarily go. And and I'm, I'm, I'm proud to say that we looked at almost every corner of the music city. And, and and that is good because we were able to elevate marginalized voices, to talk to people that you might not ordinarily talk to. So out of a lot of the stuff that I've done in the city, I think that is one that I'm most proud of. And um, I suspect that it's one of the most best-selling books that has ever been published by Vanderbilt University Press. So um, we 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 did something worthwhile with that. But I, I, I teach African-American history here with an eye toward filling in gaps in the narrative. And, you know, oftentimes when we, we think about our history, we think about it in terms of, you know, the leaders. And most of the time, those are, we're, we're, to be honest with you, we're talking about fellas. We're talking about the dudes. Um, but if we do that, particularly here in Nashville, um, you might be missing half or either as much as three quarters of the narrative because we've had some amazing, amazing sisters here. I'm, I'm interested in looking at our civil rights story, but I want to... You know, I kind of want to interview that man or that woman who stepped into the meeting kind of late. The one that was unsure. The one that was asking questions. He's like, man, I don't know if I'm built for this nonviolent stuff. That stuff can get you killed. I, I, I want to speak to them. But we have um, a beautiful opportunity in this city because we can tell the story of the movement of African-Americans in Nashville. And it'll be a story that's uniquely Nashville, right? Um, it won't be a Birmingham story. It won't be a Memphis story. It won't be an Atlanta story. And it don't need to be that because we have something unique to offer the world, um, something that nobody else has. So um, what we do here at TSU, I can't speak for the other campuses, but I can tell you what we do here at TSU. We reach out and we talk to the folks who were involved. We think very seriously about what's missing behind the narrative. So when we go to a museum or something like that, uh, my students and I are going to see how are black women represented 
in this space. If you have a museum that's dedicated to any kind of music and you don't have a banjo in there, we're going to have a problem because we know how much our culture has informed the, the, the history of this space that we call home. Okay, I'll, I'll pull up because I know you didn't call me here to lecture. I'm supposed to ask a question. No, no. Uh, people want to hear you talk and, and, and everything that you said is so beautiful because I tell you, like, I met you just in Twitter, you know, just seeing your posts because I'm a history nerd. I was drawn to it and because I saw that you were focusing on Nashville. And I was, uh, so I just started doing some digging um, after you said, yes, I'll come to, to find out even more about you. And I was just blown away. And I have put some things in the nest um, above some information that um, I gathered uh, to be able to be even better informed because I was already impressed, but, but even more impressed when I started looking at the depth of your, um, your work um, and what informed you. And I know that we have some historians in here, Dr. Marshall, I see down there, and I hope that she'll come up. And Dr. A is a, his a history nerd, and he has been having spaces on um, Carter G. Woodson. And I uh, went to your site and saw that he too was an inspiration for you and um, and your approach um, to history, um, it, it, like what you just said, it, like kind of helping us to remember things that may have been forgotten and keeping those things alive. So um, I um, am um, okay with you lecturing, and I think most of the people in here are, um, but I do have, I, I know, but I would like for you to kind of tell our audience how the, um, the Nashville, the history, the heritage project um, that you are the coordinator of. Tell us how that was born. And I'm, I'm trying not to crack up, not because um, what you're saying is humorous, but I just reflect on how that started. Um, Y'all are familiar with where the Gateway to Heritage is. Um, you know, like you're leaving TSU and you go up under I-10 and you got that plaza there with the pillars and the mural. Um, I was a part of that. Um, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. I, I got the phone call from our, our department chair. I hadn't even been on campus, right? I, was, I had just moved up here and I was in Kroger trying to figure out whether I wanted a, a, a case of libations, right? And um, he called me and he told me they were working on a project um, and he wanted to know if I wanted to be involved in it. And, you know, I was new, so of course I wasn't going to say no. But um, what occurred in the process of working on that um, Kwame Lillard um, gave us a tour of Jefferson Street, a walking tour of Jefferson Street. And this was when I had just met him. But he, he you know, he for those of y'all that knew Kwame, he was, he was a real one, right? He um, gave us a tour of the street. And then when we finally met again as a class, uh, my students... And Brittany, I think you might have been here at the time. Um, as we started talking about what we saw on Jefferson Street, one of my 
students posed a question. They were like, well, Dr. Williams, what about the folks that lived on those other streets like Hyman and Scoville and Jackson? He said, don't they have a story to tell? And I was like, yeah, they do. So I got kind of slick with that class. I said, we're going to find out together. So I created the North Nashville Heritage Project. You know, I wanted a name that would be catchy, but not corny or anything like that. And so it started out as a simple oral history project. But it evolved as we began to listen to these stories and ask more informed questions and 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 finally you know trying to figure out how to get the word out to people that we were doing something special here at tsu and 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 one of my students raised their hand and they said this they said well doc why don't you make a facebook page all the old folks hang out on facebook and i was like i don't know how to even take that comment whether you trying to be funny or what but but um, I did. And then the search got a little bit easier because people began reaching out to me and sending me stuff. Now, let me say this to you, Dee. That program was only supposed to last a year. And it started in 2010. So y'all help me with the math. The 2010 to 2024. 14 years. <laughs> yeah, so it's... it's, it's um, you know, my mom used to say, men make plans and God laughs. And I, and I think this is part of that because it's, it's, it's evolved in something that I had never conceptualized. Um, working on an app with Apple right now that will feature the North Nashville Heritage Project. Yes, and that was one of the other questions because when I started doing my research, I was like, what? They are coordinating with Apple? Please tell us about that. It's, um, I'm going to tell you what the app does. It, it, it talks about the civil rights movement, but through the eyes of TSU. That is one one of the things, and this is no slander toward brothers and sisters that went to Fisk or ABC or Meharry. I, I, I'm, I'm, this is no slander, but I don't think we get the credit we deserve here at 3500 John Merritt Boulevard for the 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 role that these people our, our young people played in the movement on the first day of the sit-in you had roughly 70 79 people that were arrested um, more than 40 of those were TSU students um, same thing with the freedom rides when the freedom ride stalled and students were dispatched to Birmingham to revitalize it, to make sure that that, that thing didn't end. Tigers made their way to Birmingham. Fourteen of them got arrested and sent to, to Parchman. And while they're at Parchman, that notorious prison, 14 of them get letters saying that they are expelled from TSU and made amends for it. Um, the year before I got here in 2008, 
but from 61 to 2008 is a long time to to make amends for something that was wrong. Um, some of our buildings on campus, you know how you go into the uh, the women's building here on campus, um, Elliott Hall, you might not think that it really amounts to nothing, but um, that space was a space where many of these folks were recruited to participate in the movement. So when, when y'all talk to your council people here in town, ask them why that isn't, Elliott Hall isn't a, 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 a historic landmark here in the volunteer state. So um, that app is going to talk about civil rights, but while we're doing that, we're gonna learn a whole lot about the people that, that, that made North Nashville one of the most important stages in our struggle for liberty. Um, so that's, that's the, the app. Another project that I'm really proud of, um, um, something called Nashville Sites. If you go around Nashville, you'll see these little QR codes that seem to be randomly placed. Um, if you scan those codes, particularly if it's an African-American site, uh, one of my students or either I'm going to start talking to you and telling you about that space. So for those of y'all who want to know a history of North Nashville or Jefferson Street or TSU, go to nashvillesites.org and, and, and you can access a lot of that material. But if you got walking, if you're trying to get your walk on, get your steps in, and you see one of those signs, and it's in an African-American space, scan it and, and be mindful of the fact that um, either somebody from this particular university or maybe Professor Wynn over at Fisk, but we are, we are a part of that effort to get the history out in, in, in public. But it's, it's important to consider this while, you know, we're enduring all of this madness about what we teach and how we teach it and so forth and trying to control the spaces where we learn and celebrate our, our knowledge that um, these efforts have, in, a, in essence, redefined what a classroom looks like. I mean, if you want to register and come on over here to Crouch All and we'll talk history to you to your blue in the face. But um, you can also find history on those street corners or in your churches or in other spaces. So um, I know you wanted me to talk about the app, but, and I did, but those are some things that are closely related to that that we are already doing. Oh, absolutely. And again, like I said, and I, I watched, um, and I hope that you guys will as well. I found um, several great videos, YouTube videos um, that you are featured in. One of them is a talk um, that you gave at the uh, Tennessee State Museum. And again, I was mm -hmm. impressed because when I talked about what I would be sharing during this Black History Month. In the beginning, the folks who are regulars know that I said I would be highlighting the Black history of Tennessee and women. And so I loved when I saw your video 
and that you really, really did um, a, um, you helped me to do that, um, first of all, by highlighting the things going on here in Nashville, our, our Black history, but highlighting the women. And one of the first Black history posts that I did was about the Hales and the hospital um, that they mm -hmm. built. And um, so um, if you would, um, I, I could you just kind of mention some of the women maybe that you highlighted in that talk, if you can recall, because I took notes. I, it's like I was going to class. <laughs> I, I was prepping for this space today. I was in school. <laughs> I'm, I'm flattered. I, um, I was coming from a, a place of anger and relief because I, um, there wasn't a whole lot out there about these women, but I was, as a matter of fact, I was, the thing that led me to this, I, I, I was teaching a course on, um, on African-American history and, and I had entered into an area where I wanted to talk about the women's club movement, right? And, and the short version of it is that um, a lot of these women's club movements that we see in America were precursors to the modern day civil rights movement because they're talking about the same thing, right? And um, Nashville was very active in it. I remember going to the, um, the Nashville Globe, which was the black newspaper here, um, that was um, edited at the time by Henry Allen Boyd. I began going through there and looking for these women, but the only thing I would see is um, it would be Mrs. Henry Allen Boyd or Mrs. Preston Taylor or, or um, Mrs. William Jasper Hale. And, and I'm thinking, it's like, these ladies are killing it as far as the women's movement is going. And certainly they had some first names, right? So finally, I, I was able to, um, I was able to identify a few. And those were the ones that highlight that I highlighted. Um, some of my most favorite in this city, the ones that I have a history crush on and if y'all could see me now you probably see little hearts floating around my head right now um but i'm gonna put these these ladies names out there um the the first first lady of um tsu hattie hale hattie hale grew up on on gay street here in nashville um she goes to pearl high school graduates from high school early then she goes to fisk graduates from fisk early then she goes and she earns a business certificate um when the school opens up she comes back here and she's very very credentialed right she, her papers are in order for anyone whether male or female and she comes here and her initial job is as a um secretary for the first president and I'm thinking, dog, man, all of this education she got, and she's working as a secretary. But it worked out for him tremendously because he looked at her and liked what he saw. Then within a year, they're getting married at um, at a, a, a ceremony, an un, 
announce ceremony here on campus, but they do it in front of the student population. She doesn't sit on the fact that she's the the um, first lady of the university, although she's entertaining C.J. Walker. She's entertaining the Booker T. Washington and his wife when they come to town. But she's very much involved in this women's club movement, movement which tried to elevate the race by reaching out to its poorest, its, its most vulnerable group, and that was black women. But there's her. There's another lady named Josie Wells, who she's from Mississippi, but she gets her M.D., at Meharry, she starts the medical program, not the, the nursing program. At Meharry, she opens up a shop where she treats diseases of women and children in downtown Nashville. And while she's there, she's the only woman there, black or white, to have an office downtown. And she provides a tremendous service for Nettie Napier. Y'all may not know of Nettie Napier, but she was... Um, She's the daughter of John Mercer Langston. And while she was in D.C., she met um, J.C. Napier. So they come back here and they become a power couple and they end up, um, she ends up creating something called a day home club. The day home club was something that would address the needs of working mothers. So for those of y'all that are out there thinking about it, well, what are they supplying? What sort of needs are they meeting? Well, if you're a working mother, you're probably going to need some child care. You're going to need somebody to pick your kids up from school. Um, you're going to have, they need activities, need um, to be fed. And you realize that had women were working all three shifts, so this is something that needs to be done around the clock. Nettie Napier and her day, day home club did that. It was right there at Fourth Avenue North initially, but um, it later moved down to Fourth um, Avenue South, right about where, right across the street from where Rocket Town is. So we have some amazing, amazing women that have come up through history. And, you know, I hadn't even got to J. Frankie Pierce or Curly Magruder. I hadn't even talked about them yet, right? But um, these, these women contributed greatly to the success in the movement and Nashville being what it is today. Um. Here's a pop quiz for y'all. You won't get any credit for it, but I'll ask you this question. If you can help me figure it out, that'll be good. Um, how many statues of the of black women are there in Nashville? I know of none. Uh, I would be, I would love to 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 be wrong. <laughs> Well, we got the Wilma Rudolph. That's right. That's right. And, and, and the, and the um, boulevard named after her. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. And um, we have one that's supposed to be J. Frankie Pierce at, um, at, at um, Centennial Park. But I looked at them statues up, down, sideways, and that didn't look like, you know, whatever. But it's the, the point that I'm making and and you know they they talk about 
J. Frankie Pierce being instrumental in um, the women's suffrage movement in this city. Um, but I don't know. I just, it, 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 all that is to say this, we don't do right by celebrating the history of black women in the city. And this is a group that has helped keep this thing together. Um, so that brings me to one of the things that I referenced earlier, who makes the decisions on what we're going to celebrate and what we're going to ignore and how we do it and when we do it and so forth. Um, these are, are, are things we need to, to think seriously about. Um, but all that is to say this, um, this city is a remarkable place with institutions that have literally changed America. I don't know. I don't even have to engage in any hyperbole with that. And, um, I think we need to be more forceful or I don't know if even that's the proper choice of words. We need to be more active, I think, in telling our own stories and revealing our own truths. Um, when people think of our spaces, you know, we, they think of maybe Jefferson Street, which is an important, important spot in this city. Um, but it's it's only one chair, chapter of the narrative of the city of Nashville, right? So that I wouldn't, and although my focus has been North Nashville, because this is where I come to work every day, um, and we have the best fish sandwiches and wings in the city right here in this area. But um, Edge Hill has something to say when we talk about Nashville, particularly when we start talking about Fort Negley and the importance of the black folks who came to Fort Negley looking for freedom and how they impact the city. Um, those folks from Fort Negley did not come here empty handed, right? They brought their culture with them. The culture in includes the music. It includes our relationship with God and how we praise him. Um, it includes our ideas about education, right? Nashville prided itself on being the, the, the Athens of the South, but they weren't being quite honest because there was a certain segment of the population that was only getting a little bit of schooling. So it doesn't manifest itself fully as Athens of the South until, um, this university opens up until Roger Williams opens up, until Walden opens up, until Meharry Medical College established. You can't talk about this city being Athens of the South until TSU shows up. Can't talk about it being Athens of the South until American Baptist is established. Um, can't talk about it being Athens of the South until Pearl High School is established. So now what I'm, I'm saying all that to say this, all of these ideas were reformed by the presence of African-Americans in the city. And that's something that should be celebrated not only during Black History Month, 
But anytime you're talking about Nashville history, that stuff needs to be written in the curriculum and studied hard. Um, and also, and this is important too, a fundamental understanding of what it meant to be free. Because these folks that came here thought about freedom in ways that most white folks here in the city or in this country had not fully conceptualized, right? They didn't, even some of the soldiers in town didn't see these black people who were coming in one at a time or by families or by groups or whatever. They didn't see them as equal. But these, these folks that came to this city had an idea about what it meant to be free. And there's a direct line between those folks that came here and John Lewis and Diane Nash and all of these other people who were standing up by sitting down. There's a direct line between that. Equality means something different. Our understanding of democracy is something that's very, very different. That was informed by these the ideas that these African Americans felt when they came here starting in 1862. Right. Well, we do have a few uh, speakers up who I know are um, um, history nerds like myself and teachers. So I want to give them an opportunity to um, weigh in um, and uh, make um, ask questions or make comments. And I will start um, with um, Dr. Marshall. And um, then Dr. A, uh, both of whom I know, and it looks like someone else, um, I, I'm not sure, EC, uh, we're going to go to you. And I, I welcome you all. And um, again, just very excited to have Dr. Williams here with us today. Uh, so, Dr. Marshall, um, what say you? <laughs> Are you there? Can you hear me, Dr. Marshall? I think my mic was off. Can you hear me now? Yes, we can. Okay. Okay. Um, Good afternoon, Dr. Williams. Thank you for being with us today and this wonderful presentation. I watched your um, video of North Nashville. I think this is the one that Dee referenced earlier at the library. I was really, really happy to hear you talk about the women that you included in your presentation and not only in in the presentation you just gave, but in the video. I have three questions. One, I'd like you to talk a little bit about the McKissick family and the architecture. You talked in the video about the school and the church and the important role that these institutions played in building the the North Nashville community and uh, sustaining it. Um, I also, you included a slide with something about John Lewis, but um, I not sure if it was my eyes or just trying to watch the video on a small screen. I, I couldn't see clearly what that reference was. I know that from what you said, he, I think it was a store or something that the owner 
the crystals yes um, i'll find the picture they locked him they locked him and the others in the store and i also wanted to know if with the mckissick family you mentioned i think it was the father and son but i wonder whether or not any of the women in the mckissick family were involved in just the management of their business and helping um the architectural firm move forward women are primarily running it right now um as as we speak um but back to the the history of the family um the McKissick family comes up out of Pulaski and it's always um I, I it's one of those things where you listen to the stories about um, young African Americans learning skills and then taking it and and it blossoming into something else. It it begins in Pulaski. Then during the nineteen twenties, they become the first um, licensed black architects in this country. Um, but here's something that I, I, I want y'all to consider. Um, the McKissick that they traced back to the, the African was part of the Ashante tribe, the Ashante group in Africa. And, you know, they were great builders in Africa long before they, they, they encountered inter, any Europeans. So they come here, and I don't know, and I remember asking my dear friend Gloria McKissick about this in terms of uh, did she know the age of that, 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 that child who, or that young man who apprenticed down there and, 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 um, and learned those skills. So when I look at these McKissick buildings, here in Nashville, whether they are the homes that are on College Hill, whether they are the homes that were owned by the McKissick brothers that are still in Edge Hill today. I, I sometimes wonder if I'm looking, if I'm, if I'm seeing some African connection in that skill and their mastery of the, 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 the science of architecture. Um, in that video, I might have referenced TSU having several McKissick buildings, even the whole. I've read something that suggested that the, the McKissick firm were actually the front for building the, the stadium with student, um, with student labor. But as we travel through Nashville and we look at this architectural firm that's still prospering today, these, these, these buildings that they built are actually monuments to, to, um, to excellence, to the skills of, um, of our people here in Middle Tennessee. And you asked me something else. I think I, I might have uh, about the John Lewis. Uh, she she it, she said a store, but it was the part where he was locked into the crystals. Oh, yeah, yeah. They um, you were sitting in in the crystals, and um, the manager 
locked them in and turned on the fumigators. I know that some in my audience might not know what fumigators is, but fumigators, what they do is they emit pesticide, which floods the room and kills pests. To this day, I don't know how that guy wouldn't charge with attempted murder because essentially that's what it was. Um, so he, he tries to poison them. Okay. Thank you for your question. Thank you. Awesome. Yes, I will find, um, I found that picture when he referenced it and I, I will put it in the, um, the nest or in the timeline, um, in the, uh, chat. So great question. What were the crystals? Crystal is like a white castle. It's, it's a restaurant. It's, it's, it's in the South. It's in the North. They, you guys have white castles here in the South. We have crystals. So that's what it was. They make them small, square. Hammers. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So up next, we've got Dr. A and then uh, EC the third. Okay. Hi, good afternoon, Ms. D, Soul Sister, and everyone in the room. Dr. Williams, good afternoon, sir. Uh, really uh, appreciative of you taking the time to come speak with us via this platform. Um uh, I have just some real quick comments and then hopefully just one question. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. The first comment is I had crystals over the weekend, so I wanted to say that. <laughs> um, and then the uh, the second thing, I really appreciate you highlighting some of the stalwarts of uh, the freedom movement. Not only uh, is Diane Nash one of my heroes, but as well as Ruby Doris and, of course, mm -hmm. uh, Fannie Lou Hamer out of Mississippi. Um, and then also keeping it local there in uh, Tennessee, uh, Reverend James Lawson, uh, knowing the uh, his influence, uh, it is impactful on me even even today. Um, my question, as uh, Ms. D highlighted, we have uh, I try to be responsible <laughs> uh, on this platform sometimes, and uh, so I've been trying to host spaces on topics that are very, very relevant, not only to uh, black folks, but to the whole country. And one of the things that I decided to do was to revisit uh, Brother Woodson, Brother Carter G. Woodson's uh, miseducation of the Negro. And so we've been meeting weekly, yeah, although we missed last week, just breaking down aspects of that piece. Um, if you could, sir, um, could you speak to, I guess, your thoughts about specifically the miseducation of the Negro and any components that you feel are applicable here in 2024? I, um, and thank you for the question. Hey, that book was tough for me to, to read as an academic because he was very critical of, of um, many of us who were seeking to obtain higher education, right? And, 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 and in it, um, you know, some of the major themes of that work is that our educational systems um, is teaching us things that are counterproductive 
to our development as 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 as, as human beings. That is, when you go through there, you'll see where um, inferiority is pounded into us day after day after day. He talks about us looking for a back door. If we don't find a back door, we we create one because our very education demand it, demands it. Um, as a scholar at the time, he, he challenged me when I read it to think about whether all the stuff that I was learning was making me useless to the people that sent me to college. And I, I, um, and it took a while for me to shake that statement off. And I still wrestle with it. I mean, as a matter of fact, I think I got one of the passages on my webpage, whether when in stating whether or not what I was being taught was making me useless to my community, to the people that I, I love. Um, so in response to that, um, and, and I'll, I'll, I'll confess this too before I make this statement. Um, a lot of the stuff that really, really interests me as a scholar, um, I, I feel like in school there wasn't a lot of support for that. So in response to that, I, I had to do this. when I, Once I graduated and got through all of that and could finally do like I wanted to do, I made it my business to make the gaze of black, black people. That is, I, I made a point to center black people in everything that I did. And I do this, I teach a course here at TSU on, um, call it African-American experience in the United States. And, and every topic that we discuss, I, I challenge my students to think about how it affects them. How does this affect your family in Memphis? How does this 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 explain some of the things that you see in your hometown? So once I started doing that, I, I hope that, you know, if if Dr. Woodson could somehow see what I'm 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 doing here at TSU, he would see a professor that is 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 focusing on on teaching their students things that are relevant to them, but also leading them to, or teaching them to research and ask questions about things that really matter to them and the communities that produce them. Okay. Okay. I don't know if I answered all of your questions. Absolutely, sir. Thank you very much. Uh, it's one component uh, that not only have I struggled with personally as well, and I'm making um, uh, um, intentional moves to ensure that I'm not useless <laughs> it is something that I'm also trying to uh, foster additional dialogue with with other with other folks. Thank you. All right, thank you. Oh, wonderful. I'm so glad that you had an opportunity to come in today, Dr. A, and ask that because I know that you have been studying with um, and hosting spaces to discuss it. And it sounds like, um, you know, from the spaces that I was in and your discussion, 
you were kind of feeling the, the same way somewhat. Um, so um, I'm glad that um, you had an opportunity to hear this uh, from someone who's, you know, this is um, their area of expertise is African-American history and how you have both used, um, you know, the father of this study um, to um, inform your activities. So um, thank you both so much. And next up, we have um, AC the third. Uh, happy to have you here and join us today. Um, you have the mic for questions or comments. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you for having me up here. Uh, Soul Sister, Dr. Williams, I've got to say, uh, this is something that I really love because I'm a Talladega man. And mm -hmm. also I live here in Montgomery, Alabama. So as you know, you brought up Diane Nash. So I live right across the street from uh, First Baptist, not right across the street, but not not too far away where the Freedom Riders were attacked mm. and the police didn't interact. And I learned about Irene Morgan's contributions in mm -hmm. 1946. And I learned about Sarah Key's contributions. And I think those contributions and Diane Nash's contributions aren't recognized enough. Mm -hmm. And I, I also learned that even though those students got suspended in Tennessee, it wasn't just a Tennessee thing. Students at Alabama State also got expelled for protesting in a sit-in. And mm -hmm. even though we were black schools with uh, private and public, Alabama State Governor Patterson basically ordered the President Levi Watkins to do it. But mm -hmm. in private institutions, the Board of Trustees had a lot of powerful people, and they didn't want to be caught up in the stuff either. So these students at TSU, they were expelled for participating in the Freedom Rides. And I'm so glad you brought that up. But my question, but my question is, can you please tell me about Ernest Withers? Because the more I find out, the more interested I am and what his role really was in being an FBI informant. And if you can shed some light on light on that for me, because um, I've been studying and I've been researching it, but I know you know a lot more than me. So I, I just want to hear your thoughts on Ernest Withers. Um, let me say this, and I'm not being crass or anything like that, but um, Withers was everywhere in the civil rights movement. He would be arguably one of the last people that you would think that would be impacted by the, or influenced by the, the feds or be working for the feds. But um, we clearly now know that he, that he was, but there's, there's a lesson from his story that, um, that I think the young organizers ought to know today, ought to learn today. And that is, if you are part of an organization that is um, dedicated to social change, if you are part of an organization that is rocking the boat, then chances are, if you're large enough, the feds are going to be 
in there. Somebody in there is not going to be um, not going to be true. So with the case of um, with the case of Mr. Withers, um, it's 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 like I said. You would have thought that he was been the last person that would have um, that would have been part of the feds. But he, um, on on one hand, when we look at him, we we see that he took some amazing, amazing photographs. Right, he's the guy that essentially chronicled the 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 the, the movement. Particularly, start thinking about what occurred in in Memphis. But um, but nonetheless, he presents a paradox, though, and that is. The fact that um, you know everybody might not be what they seem. I can, as I think about some of this more poignant photographs, you know those. I have a man. I am a man. Photographs where the men are carrying the the um, the the placards during the sanitation work workers strike. Um, that's some of the best evidence I think that we have that chronicles that period of time. But it was done by taken by a guy that um, that um, was trying to play both teams, if you will. So I don't know. He's he's a paradox on one hand, but he provided a, a, a valuable valuable service for us. On the other hand, um, one thing that I want to, and and you did mention um, Talladega, correct? Um, yes, sir. The Alpha Laura Vega of them all. Yes, sir. <laughs> all right. Because, man, I teach a course on um, on the history of HBCUs. And we do a lot more in that class and talk about how TSU has the most crunk band in the nation. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> but um, my professors, um, Joe Richardson and Maxine Jones, wrote the history of Talladega, um, of the book, The History of Talladega, and it's it's very, very good. And one last tip of the hat to Alabama State. Um, um, I don't know if they get the, the praise or the acclaim that they deserve outside of Alabama because um, um, they were intimately involved in everything that went on in that part of the the state. You shouldn't be able to talk about the bus boycotts or anything that happened in Montgomery without talking about that institution. As a matter of fact, their graduates would go on to participate in many of the social rights, civil rights issues in that state. So um, I um, get love for my brothers and sisters down there for sure. Well, I know that made Dr. A feel good, uh, uh, Alabama man. <laughs> so um, great questions, EC. So glad to have you join us here today. And again, um, we're all honored to be uh, learning from Dr. Williams today. And um, I want to invite anyone else um, up uh, to... Um, the floor uh, for questions and comments. I do have some more questions for um, Dr. Williams. And one of them is, um, I had 
been doing a lot of study. I've been doing these spaces now um, going on three years and covered a, a lot of things. And I've certainly covered the period of um, desegregation and um, the uh, places in Tennessee that were a big part of that. And I was just wondering, I know that you do, you teach here in Nashville, you do a lot of your, your work is focused on things in Nashville, but I was just wondering um, if you um, had any uh, studies or information on the Oak Ridge 12 and um, Anderson County, where, you know, they were the first uh, communities in the South to um, implement, um, desegregation, you know, Oak Ridge kind of went unnoticed because it technically, you know, it's kind of a, a government ran city. So there was no police or, you know, um, white citizen council involvement in that. But then, um, the other county was, um, so I was wondering if you had done any of your studies around that. I'll, I'll confess most of my my work has been right here in in Middle Tennessee, um, and that's kind of where I've focused my gaze. Although I um, although a lot of my work does entail Nashville, some of my more recent stuff is dealing with rural areas in in Middle Tennessee, like outside of Charlotte and um, areas that were rural back in the day. I'm working closely with groups in Columbia and in Murfreesboro. I hadn't made my way out to um, to East Tennessee. And that's not to suggest that the the stories out there um, aren't, aren't worthwhile because um, when it came to integration, y'all were kind of ahead of the curve out there. Um, we just had, there's a new book out about the, um, um, about Clinton, Tennessee and the efforts to integrate there. Um, yeah. And that's what I think, cause I think that's Anderson County, but, uh, the city, it, it is Clinton and they just, um, recently <clears throat> within the last decade included that in their, their books and their, um, and so that, that would not be forgotten because much of that history had been forgotten and there are still a few people alive um, who can tell those stories. So I do hope that you do get to um, make it out to those areas and, and, and include that in part of your historical study and research of, of Nashville and embedded in, in the work that you do to ensure that those memories and sacrifices are not forgotten. And, and 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 I do because in many instances the stories are related in some regard, although there's subtle differences in that the black population out in that part of the state might not be as concentrated as it is here in the middle and definitely is not as much as in the western part of the state. But the narratives are very much connected because um you know, there were state laws that um, called for, maintained, sustained Jim Crow segregation. So um, I do um, I do need to pay more attention to our, our Eastern family, yes. Well, it's, it's a lot to cover, and I appreciate all that you have done. Um, 
And I, I wanted to ask, because this is included in, in one of the, the documentaries that were done that you were included in, and uh, I know that this is your area of focus, like North Nashville. I don't think a lot of people recognize uh, that uh, Out North documentary. It, it's short but very moving because um, one of the individuals in their speaking talks about um, everything that Nashville is known for came out of the 37208 and in particularly the rich musical history. The fact, first of all, like I, people who come to my space all the time, they know this because I constantly remind them that, you know, Music City got that name, not because of country music, but because of the Fist Jubilee singers. And I have rel a relative who is an, a, a Jubilee singer alumni. And, um, you know, I told you my mom is a TSU alumni. But could you speak a little bit about the musical influence um, in that area? Is the... Um the Jubilee Singers were the city's first international touring group. Um, and, and here's the important thing when you think about that. Um, you know, initially they're singing classical songs, but later on they, they introduced the world to the songs that our ancestors raised up out of these cotton fields and tobacco fields and and rice fields in, in this country. Um, the songs that they raised up out of their, their closed spaces where they could worship God as they saw fit. And that music informed most, if not all, of everything that we here today and that's that's rock and roll that's r&b that's country um african-american music influenced all of that but as as north nashville develops i i there was you know around the 1930s you have a migration of folks and businesses from um, what's Charlotte Avenue now to to Jefferson Street. And, you know, you think about the reasons for that. Why did they have that growth? Well, you had TSU and Fisk there, and then Meharry is coming there during the early part of the Great Depression. So you got people building up the economic base, and, of course, with more money, we want more things, right? So to that end, you begin to see these grocery stores and all of these businesses that we, that we celebrate. Um, we had a cotton club here in, um, in North Nashville. It wasn't on Jefferson Street, it was on Hyman Street. But nonetheless, you could go there and you could hear Duke Ellington and, and, and all of the jazz greats. So as time progresses, you get this reputation of being this music center along the, 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 the um, quote, Chitlin circuit, if you will. And I can remember sitting with a group of elders 
that um, said that if things would have went a different way, then North Nashville would have been would have been Motown. It's it's when I first arrived here, it was nice because I could um, talk to elders that experienced that firsthand, right? Like, um, if you're from Nashville, you're probably familiar with Mr. Kendall, Ed Kendall. Um, but then I, I also, I remember talking to, and it saddens me because a lot of these folks have departed, Arnez Bodenhammer. I can remember talking to him about his favorite spot, and he said something. He mentioned a club called Club Waikiki that I knew nothing about. Um, a, a young man, well, he's a senior, but he, um, as a young man, this guy's name was Jesse Fanroy. Mr. Fanroy's daddy was the coal and ice man for North Nashville, so he delivered coal and ice to all of these places. So this place becomes a, a, a space not only where Black people lived and could be entertained, but it was a place that could insulate them from the worst aspects of Jim Crow. Sometimes think about what it would have been like to walk along that strip during the 30s and 40s once it's really starting to catch its feet, to find its way, and and um and, um it's it's with Nashville's central location. It becomes a place where people want to be seen, not only seen, but um, not only to look, but to be seen. I can remember, um, and this barbershop no longer exists. J.T. Smith's barbershop, but I remember being in Miss Mr. J.T.'s shop, and um, I don't know if y'all remember it, but um, you know he had a barbershop in front and a beautician shop in the back. And the ladies would sometimes come through there and the the elderly gentlemen would flirt and so forth. So on this one occasion, this guy was telling me about um, Tina Turner being at the, at the, um, she was sitting out at the corner of 18th or D.B. Todd in Jefferson. And uh, he said, yeah, Tina Turner was sitting out there. And I said, well... Wow, because I knew this guy flirted with everybody, right? I was like, well, was she as good looking back in the day as people make out? And the guy got up and dapped up everybody in the barbershop and just smiled. And I said, I know you said something to her. And he said, no, because Ike was right there by her. And I heard that and I chuckled and I thought about that was one sort of element of that existence that I might have might have missed. But it it's um Yeah, and we had folks like um Jimi Hendrix, um mm -hmm. and um gosh, um just so many, like you said. I um I'm in my mid sixties, but even growing up when I was hanging out, some of those like the new era club, I mean, we mm -hmm. used to party there. <laughs> um, the, the history of, of those, uh, places, you know, um, is in our DNA, you know? Yeah. And I, um, there's, there's a lot of, of stories there that, um, 
that I that I, I think we we still need to share. I can I can remember um, this guy telling me a story about Muhammad Ali being in Club Del Morocco and being smitten with one of the women that was dancing there, and so he hit her with this line, you know, the what's a nice girl like you doing in a place like this? And she said she was trying to go to school. And so he paid her tuition for her tuition that semester. But also it's it's an interesting story too, because um, y'all know where Schrader Lane is in, um, adjacent to TSU. Prior to it being in that space, it was right across the street from Club Del Morocco. And I sometimes think or sometimes wonder if, if when the, uh, uh, a, a, a crossing of musicians, there, can you see somebody playing the piano at Club Del Morocco and then coming over to the church to make a few bucks um, at the church the next day? I don't know. Yeah, folks. I, I I can envision that you know for sure because I have a lot of uh, musician friends, uh, so um, I can definitely uh, envision that. I was going to say and joking, uh, y'all might be a bit more saved up here in Nashville than my folks are in Tallahassee. But I know if we was in Tallahassee, it'd be that would be the thing for sure. But this this this. I'll, I'll say that this, and I'll, I'll um, pull up on your question. Um, this city ain't the music city without our music, without what went on on Jefferson Street in terms of the 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 music, the musicians, just the 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 atmosphere, the thing that 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 gives. Nashville, it's distinct rhythm. It wouldn't be like that if if you didn't take in account our music. And even even today, when we you know we go downtown, and you got all these bicycle these bicycle taverns that are making their way through town. Um, the woo girls yelling at everybody. Um. Yeah, it's very rare that you hear them playing country music on those taverns, right? It's primarily our music. So I'm saying all that to say this. Um, the music produced on Jefferson Street figures prominently into the thing that makes Nashville the it city. Absolutely. In fact, in that video, and I think it's very uh, appropriate, it's called because there is actually a music row where all of the, you know, the companies and things that produce the music exist. I worked there at one point in my life uh, for an architectural firm uh, mm -hmm. in the marketing department. But, you know, Jefferson Street, they called it the original original music row. And, mm -hmm. and I uh, concur with that. I agree. Um, and Dr. Marshall has um, her hand up with um, a question or a comment. And then I have another, because I want to get into what changed, what something significant that happened um, to that street that changed the trajectory of that community. So Dr. Marshall. 
Yes, um, Dr. Williams, I wanted to have you comment or expand a little bit on something you said at the very beginning in that you, your work primarily deals with memory, amnesia, and who determines what has value. I have been, well, I've finished what I call volume one of my family history, and it is based not only on my memory, but the actual words of ancestors through their letters, postcards, and other memorabilia that they left behind. And so my question is, can you recommend a piece of your work that deals with how you approach teaching African-American history? And one question that you asked, who determines what has value? Is there um, a work that you've done that kind of answers that question, although I would think that is a question with an answer that's constantly changing and ongoing. Um, I guess with who determines, and, and let me say this, there are gatekeepers everywhere. And, and sometimes they are, are people, but in other instances might just be dollar signs, right? Um, some of my work has manifested itself in the form of, um, you know, historical markers, but those markers cost money, right? Um, the one that I'm, one of the ones I'm most proud of is the uh, marker that sits at the corner of Fourth Avenue North in, in Charlotte. Um, it's MLK now, I'm sorry. Um, but that was the slave marker, slave market marker. Um, I wrote the, a student from TSU pushed me to write the proposal for that marker. And I, um, I wrote it, and it got approved, but I still needed um, $1,450. And TSU didn't have any money for me to pay for that, right? That wasn't in the budget. Um, so I got the money from the streets, from North Nashville. And, and, and I, I want to... to um, to, to say this, um, often of our, our, um, our support, our most meaningful support comes from, from the streets. I, um, but they were able to get that to me and, um, then I paid for the mark. Well, no, let me tell the story correctly. I was able to get half of the money from the streets. And there were seven students in my class. And I um, I put in 100 for each of them. Now, don't get it twisted because TSU ain't paying me like that. So my 100 was on layaway, right? So I got 100 this month, 100 this month, seven months later. We straight. Um. 
But I thought about that as I went through that process. I'm thinking if I didn't have the money or I couldn't raise the money, then that story would not be told, right? Um, we we put up a, a marker last year. Um, put up a marker last year f- to commemorate the the, um, the lynching of a 15-year-old boy here in Nashville named um, Sam Smith. And um, it was a battle, but we were able to get it up. And somebody tore it down on Juneteenth, I suspect. Um, and, 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 and it's down, and it's probably going to cost like 2000 something dollars to replace. So it started, it started me to thinking that, um, you know, we might need to consider that um, we need another way to commemorate the past, one that is insulated from a racist with a pickup truck and a chain, right? Um, so in regards to that historical memory, um, we can utilize the things that we do, but we need to think of creative, more creative ways to, 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 um, to implement them, to celebrate them. And it might be just having folks together, right, for a, um, a libation ceremony. We say, okay, we're going to meet out here every December 15th. We're going to say a few words, speak his name, pour out some water, and that'll be something that is we've done physically, but something that will be posted up in our minds and in our hearts. Um, so that's one of the ways I think we can we can deal with that. Y'all excuse me for just a second, just a second. Okay. The next point, and, and I, um, I, I, I want to suggest this to those of y'all that are from the city, to those of y'all who have long memories of what is, has happened in the city, um, I encourage you to share your stories with your youngsters. All of these students, all of these young folks have iPhones, and um, I'm not sure, I'm getting a little bit older, so I don't even know what social media platform they're hanging out on, but I do know I see a whole bunch of TikTok videos. Get them to record you talking about Jefferson Street. Walk down Jefferson Street or your community with them and talk about the McKissick family that live here that talked about Edge Hill before it became gentrified. And um, start your own archives. And if this, if we can create a critical mass, I can probably write something that'll convince somebody to give us a little money so that we can archive these things. So in a way, I um, I um, I know our young folks, and we're not bashing young people don't get me wrong here because i was young young a long time ago and then my dad probably tell you i had some interesting ways of doing things um but um they love their phones they love recording so let's encourage them to encourage stuff that's that that'll have meaning beyond just the few clicks they might get or the 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 15 minutes of fame that they might have. And thanks for your question. 
Absolutely, um, because uh, I love that aspect of, um, you know, your, your work that, um, and I know that that is Dr. Marshall's as well, is uh, preserving memories. And I'm um, glad that you explained, like, it costs. Those markers and things cost, which, um, you know, as you said, uh, let's try to find some some other ways where, um, they cannot be undone maybe so easily. I feel like the the Apple um, app project that you're working on is is perhaps one of those ways um, that it cannot be destroyed. It um, when I was first approached by them, I had all kinds of ideas. y'all remember you remember that Pokemon Go thing? Um, when when people were walking around with their phones and looking for looking for some like Pokemon or something. Yeah, like a treasure hunt kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I um I I wanted to do that, but I wanted to do that using history, right? So we could go maybe to um go to the strange building over here and hold up your phone and maybe have the AOB began performing. Or you could go to Goodwill Manor and see that image, that very popular image here at TSU of President Hale and his faculty. Wanted it to be something that would be, um, that was engage that would engage the youngsters as well as the the seniors, because it would be be something that um, would give visualization to their memories. So, um, but yeah, I needed. Well, we'll do continue brainstorming because it we know uh, that it is very critical that we do the work. Uh, preserving our history and telling our stories. And, and you've given us some, some great suggestions. And of course, I have a, a granddaughter who, you know, they're studying um, social studies and those types of things. So when she tells me about, you know, them studying about Martin Luther King or other things, I try to help her place it in a personal way and say, Nana was this many years old when that happened, or this is what, you know, Nana's memory of that is so that it can uh, become more personal for and um, to continue um, telling those stories and to help to inspire um, understanding and interest um, in our history, their history, America's history, especially nowadays with the war on education that mm -hmm. we're, um, you know, experiencing now, uh, because we know that the UDC uh, did a lot of work that suppressed a lot of information yeah. and, and a lot of our history. <laughs> and it's, um, and I'll, 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 I'll tell you what we can add to the narrative with our, our, our personal experiences. Hey, um, cause you know, I took a class on civil rights many, 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 many years ago. Um, but I, 
my very first interview with somebody who actually lived through Jim Crow introduced an element of emotions that I could not get from the um, from the book or from my sources. Your sources don't reveal that the person being interviewed had tears in their eyes. Your sources that I've read didn't reveal just the depth of the anger some folks felt. I can remember, I remember talking to Kwame and you know, Kwame was featured in the Eyes on the Prize video. And he told that story about the water fountains tasting the same. He couldn't taste the difference between a white water fountain and a black water fountain. But um, I asked him about going to the arcade and how sometimes folks in Nashville had to, during Jim Crow, had to use the bathroom in the alleys and how degrading that was, how humiliating that was. I, I, um, I couldn't really understand the, the depths of what it felt like until I, I, I talked to them. I, I remember um, growing up as a little boy, my dad would always have my mom's, and some of y'all might be able to relate to this, when we went on road trips, and this was kind of after the Green Book thing, right? Uh, we'd go on road trips, and my dad would have my mom fry up some chicken, and she would wrap the chicken up. She'd, wrapped the chicken up in aluminum foil with a couple of slices of Wonder Bread. And and that would be my meal. Uh, my dad wouldn't stop at any McDonald's, KFC, nothing like that. He seemed like he sped up when we got close to those things. Um, and I, I didn't understand why he did that. But growing up, he didn't know what places were safe for him to stop and get some to eat or get some gas. So he didn't know these things. My dad grew up in rural Georgia. But if we were to go back and look at Nashville during this time or any of the many of the ur urban areas, um, these black communities were our safe spaces. These were spaces where we could find refuge from Jim Crow. These were the spaces where we could get something to eat. Um, these were the places where you could go and not worry about being disrespected. Um, I met John Hope Franklin, the um, one of our prominent. Um, he was one of our prominent historians. Um, I met him in Memphis at the um, I think at the Peabody Peabody Hotel. That's in Memphis, right? Um, I can I can remember meeting him and him telling us a story about how when he first came to that city. Um, this was during the 1950s to present a paper. He couldn't even stay at the hotel. He had to stay with some friends or somebody he knew that lived in South Memphis. So I'm, I'm saying all that to say this, that period that we're looking at right now um, is not ancient history. Um, many folks that are, are still with us today remember it candidly. Now, uh, let me take a moment to 
um, address the Jefferson Street question and what happened. Because I'm going to have to pull up in a minute for another meeting. I'm sorry. Um, what happened? Well, the interstate highway system happened. Urban renewal happened. You know, when the Interstate Highway Act is passed, it's, it's being it's seen as a tool to to um, renew urban spaces. So in many cities, that effort entailed running these places through black neighborhoods. So if y'all go to, you can go to Miami, you can go to can observe it here in Nashville, you can see it in Atlanta, you can see it in Charlotte, any place you see interstate heading through neighborhoods, chances are those spaces were once thriving black communities. But precisely what happened here, um, once the plans became known, um, you have People in North Nashville, it's led by Z, um, excuse me, Avon Williams and others, who point out that this is going to be catastrophic for the community, right? And of course, they offer alternate routes. Initially, the, the first route was supposed to go through, um, supposed to go by Bell Mead. And I should see a whole bunch of laughing faces here, because if you're in Nashville, you knew that wasn't going to happen. One of the not, richest communities, uh, suburbs in, in, the, in town. Yeah, no. Yeah. Okay. Um, it could have run where Briley Parkway currently is. But no, they decided to run it through North Nashville, and it would intersect two areas in North Nashville, and all of them are on Jefferson Street. And I, I, I remember when I first got here, I wanted to go through the census and to see what home ownership looked like in those spaces where it intersected. And many, many of those folks owned homes. And, and what it did was it forced them to relocate. Some of them end up in Bordeaux, um, some move to Antioch, and then others are just lost. And the next time you come through um, North Nashville, and or the next time you go across, go down Jefferson Street and you cross where Mount Zion is, and you look to your left, you'll see the interstate and see how it just just carved out a section of the community. Once you go past Mount Zion, make that left on 12th Avenue and you look to the left and you'll see nothing but a fence, a fence that leads to a big canyon that is the interstate. So that displaced a lot of people, a lot of businesses. They are gone. But then another thing happens in 1964. You have the Civil Rights Act of 1964 that's passed. And that... Um, gives us access to spaces that we could not get at before, right? And then you have the um, Housing Act that's passed in 1968. Now on paper, it's, it's prohibited to discriminate in housing based upon your race. 
So you got all these factors at work and people are leaving the community. And, and, and once the economic base begins to trickle out, um, the community, which has already been treated as like the unwanted stepchild community anyway, it begins to um, degrade further. And I don't mean in terms of people, but just in terms of services and the tax base, right? So I in, in a couple of my talks, you'll hear about me saying communities have life cycles. Um, they're born, then um, they reach adolescence, then they mature, they mature and then they die. Or they become something else. Um, in the case of North Nashville, that final stage was determined by somebody else. And we could talk about the community dying. And, you know, sometimes you can you can die because somebody come and knock you upside the head and kill you. Right. But then some deaths are long and protracted. Let's say I get cancer or whatever and die out over. I fight and I fight and I fight and I die. Um, at the result of a long struggle or somebody can slip me some poison and the poison doesn't kill me right away but it makes me sick and then sicker and sicker and I don't recover. Um, I'm using this in terms of metaphors to kind of give you some insight into what this community is experiencing, right? Is that head trauma that was those acts that were those bulldozers that are knocking out. There's a slow poison that we can define as gentrification. Whereas you'll have one business that's coming in, then another, and then people coming in who don't really appreciate the history of the community. They just don't care. But then the end result is a tall and skinny thing going up with, um, People that ain't really sensitive to the community, but sensitive or not, the tax base is elevating. And now I can't afford to stay here. Or it 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 might be a a a, a cancer, um, a cancer that is that that feeds on indifference. So in in, in many ways. You know, that's what is happening. But I feel like um, we still have people in the community that are fighting. Both old and young, people that have been here for a minute, and people that just got here. Um, but I think it's imperative for us to... Um, you know, if you are a younger person that's here, that's new, don't neglect the wisdom and the counsel of the elders because they've seen all of the tricks that have been played. They've been here and they can tell you what worked and where they stumbled. And I humbly submit to you where they stumbled might be the most important lesson that they have for us. But for the seniors out there, 
Um, let's listen to the young folks and see if we can find a way to work with them. Because they're the ones with the energy, right? I, um, and I don't know where I fall in the spectrum of old versus young, but um, I ain't as energetic as I was 20 years ago. So um, I guess that's my, my message to the community. And don't be afraid to reach out to the institutions here. Um, to TSU, Fisk, and Meharry for assistance because um, Nashville is fortunate that you have, I mean, we have the, within this zip code 37208, you probably got the highest concentration of black intellectuals of anybody in the state. This includes Memphis, and and I'm not slandering Memphis by any means, but we got, I had three HBCUs that are within walking distance of where I'm talking to y'all right now. So you have some excellence in here, in these spaces that might be able to come up with a solution. And, and for your academics out there, um, we have specialization, we have expertise and we know some stuff right but i think we need to do a better job of listening to what the people want as opposed to us just barking out orders and sitting back and watching things transpire anyway i'm, I'm sorry y'all i have a meeting in like three minutes okay well we do not want to delay you but again so honored that you took the time out of your day to come and share um, your rich experience and work with us. I'm honored. So um, we'll say goodbye and we hope um, or see you later because we hope you'll join us again sometime. I will. And thank you all for um, inviting me into your space. I'm looking wild. Time really flew. It really does when you're having great conversations. So uh, have a great wow. rest of your day and uh, we hope to see you again soon. Thank you so much. Okay. I really Thank enjoyed you. listening to you. I really enjoyed hearing about the history and getting your insight. I really appreciate you coming, and I do hope you come back. Thank you so much. I will, and thank you. All right, guys. We have been um, really um, blessed today to have um, someone with um, his um knowledge and expertise. And it was so interesting because one of the videos um, – that I watched um, that he did the one for the Tennessee State Museum when he got to the question part it was so funny because I, I recognized the, the voice because um, they don't show the audience members asking questions, but it was um, someone I grew up with, <laughs> you know, in my hometown um, and she was a, a state senator. And um, so it's just, um, you know, how a, a live history can be for us and the connections um, that we make. It's just um, awesome. And I hope that we continue um, making these connections, as he said, you know, to the to the youth, um, because 
we have stories to tell. Uh, Dr. Marshall, I feel honored to have her with this. And, and when she's able to come up and share, uh, I feel like these are uh, this is living history, but they have so much that they can share with us. And it is a, a duty, I feel like, of the next generations to take that history um, and um, to ensure that it is not forgotten. So I um, am grateful that we had an opportunity ha to have uh, Professor Williams with us on this last Monday, um, our last space in Black History Month. But we know that, you know, Black history is 365 days a year um, because, um, you know, our history is America's history. So uh, we will uh, now switch over to our normal programming and pick up on some of the things um, and topics that we um, had talked about at the top of the hour. And I see Mark is here and I was um, I'm going to send him an invite. I don't know if he's able he's at a place where he can speak or not. But I know there's some things going on. Um, at uh, SCOTUS, some things, cases that they're hearing, of course, the legal cases surrounding the former guy, George, uh, Judge Erdogan, um, made his um, ruling and um, the clock is ticking. Um, the eight New York AG um, is giving him a, a daily tally because um, the interest is accruing at something. I thought it was 111, but maybe it's $114 anyway. It's been a few days, so it just keeps adding up. And um, so I want to, again, like I said, we're switching modes and we're going to talk about the things that we um, normally do, the important topics that are going on um, around us. I know that most of you have seen the clip of Trump. Um, oh, God, I hate that I said his name, but him speaking to these this black conservative forum in um, South Carolina. And we we know that th this is an issue that we have in our community. And as, as someone before had mentioned, like it, it's not the first time in our history that people within our communities um, have done things that uh, bring us more harm. Uh, than good and and or and advancement. So, if um, you guys want to kind of delve into that, um, and um, I know that um, there's going to be some continued news around the House reconvening because of the government shutdown, the Ukraine funding um, still hasn't been dealt with, and they're at a place now where they are having to ration. Um, ammunition. Uh, they are losing ground that they won. And it is all because um, that help is being purposely um, withheld by Republicans in this country. And, um, you know, the impeachment hearing that's going forth, uh, which was based largely on, um, you know, someone who is now known arrested and detained for lying and they're still not backing down. So I'm going to say um, I'll stick a pen in that and go to Mark so he can give us his uh, legal analysis and updates. And we'll just pick our conversation back up. Mark, how are you, my dear friend? <laughs> I'm doing great in this 70 degree New Orleans weather. 
Isn't Shout it crazy? I mean, like. <laughs> love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, it's, it's a time to be outside. And, and uh, I, you know, I, I, that was a great, uh, um, great guest speaker. I, I love listening to academics and, and um, just being a student again made me feel good. So I'm, I'm appreciative of the setup and also the, uh, the content of the professor. Um, great stuff there. Um, so I, I'm going to be kind of quick because there's, even though there's not much happening decision-wise, there's a lot happening. Uh, just a couple things. Um, just this morning, uh, um, Alina Haba and, and uh, Trump's other uh, attorneys filed a notice of appeal that's required to file an appeal. It's not the actual appeal. It's just a notice of appeal. Nothing has happened with regard to uh, him posting the bond in order to conduct the appeal or even stay the judgment. So that clock is still ticking. Um, but what it does, what it does intimate him filing the notice of appeal without filing, um, without, without, uh, uh, filing a bond or, or putting forth the bond that's necessary in order to get the appeal and ensure that the, the judgment creditor is protected through the appellate process, um, is that he's having difficulty coming up with uh, that amount of funds as you alluded to. Um, that, that amount goes up by uh, almost a hundred thousand dollars every day. So every day on, even on appeal, um, it's good. The judgment's going to get worse and worse. Um, so th that's going to happen no matter what. And it, it, what the notice does, it just tells the court, Hey, I'm going to appeal. That's literally what it is. I'm going to appeal. And, um, it starts the clock, uh, where, uh, uh his Trump's defense team has six months to perfect the appeal through moving papers. Um, so he has six months to do that, but that doesn't stop the judgment. And if he doesn't put up that uh, uh, that bond, it, I mean, he already asked Judge Ingeron to uh, issue a stay, which he's not going to do. Um, it doesn't stop uh, Letitia James and the New York Attorney General's office from uh, seizing property in order to affect uh, to affect the uh, the ends of the judgment. So that is what's happening right now. Um, and as you can imagine, as much as they're uh, they're signaling or, or they're they're puffing on fox news and and uh, all these other uh, right-wing um, media outlets um he's having trouble coming up with the, uh, half a billion dollars to cover uh the judgment not just in uh the new york ag's case but also in the the second um e Jean carroll uh case that judgment is is accruing interest as well and he hasn't put up a bond to appeal that order as well so there's a, there's a lot of there's a lot going on here with regard to uh, Trump um, in, uh, in in these uh, civil uh, cases. Then we have the Alvin Bragg case, uh, the Stormy Daniels uh, case starting uh, in a couple weeks. Uh, actually, next week, uh, Jerusalem is going to be starting. So that case, that's going to be the first criminal case that jumps off. Um, what is interesting that it, what is happening and people might be wondering and anxious of why the Supreme Court hasn't come out with a, a decision yet on the immunity issue. Um, is that we can we can we can uh, infer from these little nuggets of time that's happening in, in prior Supreme Court rule. Um, if they were going to grant a stay uh, on an immunity and accept the case, they would have come out with a decision already. If they had the votes to do it, so if they had five votes to grant the stay, they would have already done it by now. And if they had four votes, uh, um, they still might have four votes to hear it, but I don't think so either. The reason why is because. Um, because it's taken this much time, what we can infer is happening is that the decision has been to deny the stay, but someone is dissenting or someone is writing a concurring opinion 
um, and we can <laughs> surmise who these people might be that either might be dissenting or concurring and, and joining in, in concurrence. And so papers are being shuffled between the chambers uh, with regard to dissents and, and concurrences. Um, and we can assume, I, you know, I think it's safe to assume that uh, one of the three, Alito, or two of the three, or maybe all three of them, Alito, Thomas, and Gorsuch are maybe not Gorsuch, but definitely Alito and Thomas probably are dissenting uh, with regard to the stay and also uh, the uh, accepting the case. So what I think is occurring, this is my best guess is occurring, is that the court is not just uh, going to be issuing a ruling on the stay of um, the emergency stay to, to um, prevent the case from moving forward until the Supreme Court has its last word. But that's already been, they don't have enough votes for that. Um, but what the court is doing is they're they're issuing a they're going to issue a ruling on the entire matter, so it doesn't come back up again. Um, and so, I what so there's going to be some kind of opinion that comes out. It, it might just be to affirm the DC court's opinion rejecting that claim that the president has absolute immunity. Um, uh, and then there's some dissents on on the particulars of of what you know what kinds of immunity a president may or may not have. Um, that might be the issue. So it might not be a a, a perfect defense, but it might be. Uh, Thomas or Alito just trying to chime in and say that there is some there is some absolute immunity with regard to some presidential actions. Um, and so that's what's going on in the court. I think we're going to hear something either today or sometime this week, uh, because those judges have had almost two weeks to to get their uh, get their papers through. Um, so I think we're going to hear something this week. I would be surprised if we didn't, uh, although that still would be pretty fast for a Supreme Court to be moving. Uh, but I think they're going to move pretty fast on this. And, uh, and what I think is occurring. Um, and when I say, I think I, this is like, um, like 99% sure. I think, uh, the, the stay has been denied. So, um, that's, that's the key right here. I, I don't think that, uh, Jack Smith cares about what, the, what the reasons is that just that it's denied. This case is going to be sent down to judge Chutkin to get back on the calendar. Um, and, uh, this week, I think, and because it's the first week of March, Judge Chutkin promised um, promised uh, the Trump defense team in the January 6th case um, a, a full set of months. I think he has 88 days left of that before they she before she before a stay was was granted because of the uh, interlocutory appeal on presidential immunity. So what's going to happen is I think we're going to be looking at a jury trial at least on the January 6th case in sometime in May. Now. There is going to be some play here, and this is going to put Judge Cannon, Aileen Cannon, on on point with regard to how she communicates with Judge Chutkin because she's not going to go forward on the Mar-a-Lago case because that the confidential uh, information is almost the SEPA section of that case for the for the uh, for the uh, the documents case of Mar-a-Lago is almost complete, um, and that's the bulk of discovery right there. So, and and she has not. Um, she's not come off the May jury trial date, even though it's going very slow. Um, and uh, Trump filed his pretrial motions last week. So it could be the case that um, Judge Cannon keeps her May day and may or may not have that as an actual date. So Chuckin would have to. Oh, we lost you, Mark. Uh, Chuckin would have to do what? Yeah, I got to Chuckin would have to try to play uh try to play with that date and maybe make it six to eight weeks after so if if judge cannon keeps her uh keeps her trial date um which is a good thing that means mar-a-lago would go first um then the january 6th case out of the dc circuit would go in july um and then 
the best of both worlds. We get two cases in the summertime, two convictions um, that are would be expected, and then that would happen before the even the, the, the Republican convention. So that's that's what's that's what's at play right now. If the Supreme Court comes in uh, this week on the immunity question, once this question is answered, there's no more interlocutory appeals for any of the criminal matters. So there's the only appeals that are going to be left are post conviction appeals. Um, so this is this is the last of the of the appellate delays that can occur outside of, of, of the trial court. And we'll be back on original calendar. And once that starts to happen, uh, when the the the, uh, the reality of these trials are starting to happen, I think you're going to see a turn in the electorate and some of these polls are going to become a little bit more distinguished with regard to independence and, and centering Republicans that are like, hey, man, this, these trials are going to happen this summer. This dude is likely to be convicted, and with these pretrial motions, we're going to start seeing more evidence, um, not just not just you know uh, the indictment and the charging documents, but the evidence that's expected to be presented and the limitations on the defenses that uh, that the prosecution or Jack Smith's team is going to be firing to limit the defenses that uh, uh, that um, Trump can make. Like, so he's not going to be able to say go into court and say. I declassify this information. That's going to be there's going to be a motion, either uh, either a pretrial motion, determinative, um, or if he uh, advice of counsel motion uh, motion to make him assert that he's he's going based upon he got this information from counsel. He has to assert that um, and uh, can't just bring that up on the day of trial. So those are the motions that are going to be going to be coming in. Jack Smith already uh, filed those motions in the January sixth case on the the in the DC case. Um, we haven't gotten that far in the Mar-a-Lago case, but uh, it, it will be expected that once this immunity issue uh, is determined um, and these pre-trial motions are, are opposed and there's a reply, and we get actual hearings, we start hearing a lot more substantive evidence that's going to really sway the electorate. Um, and I already, as you can tell, even though uh, Mr. Trump is winning uh, these um, these primaries, he's not winning by a lot, especially as a three-time Republican uh, incumbent candidate. He's not winning by a, a, a large margin like you'd expect. Um, there's, you know, in some of these cases, uh, you know, 30 to 50 percent of, of the votes that would go for the other uh, person, Miss Haley, um, are saying they're not going to vote for Trump. That's a big, that's a big chunk of people that are saying they're not going to vote for Trump if he's the if he's the candidate, which is another reason why uh, Ms. Haley is staying in the game, um, which actually makes a lot of sense for her, especially if she's, if she's continuing to raise money. That fact alone, that kind of ties into not only why she's in the race, but um, it ties into the fact that she's getting a lot of donors and still raising a big chunk of money and actually, in some cases, out-raising uh, the, the uh, presumptive nominee, uh, especially over the last, what, so far this year, I think she's out. Correct me if I'm wrong. Somebody correct me. I think she's out racing uh, in the first part of this year. The donors are like, "Hey, we might need an alternative too." Uh, I think that's where that money is coming from. So that's how these legal cases are going to start having an effect on on uh, Trump directly uh, with regard to not only his candidacy but also um, these cases. Uh, a report came out uh, uh, about a week or two ago. That if on if if the spending habits or if the spending patterns on on his defenses maintain, he'll be out of money to out of money by July to spend on these cases, um, which is why he has attorney Baba and these other attorneys because he can't you know bigger firms, bigger attorneys, 
experience tonight. They're not, they're not messing up their whole career trying to defend this guy. Um, so that's where we are uh, legally in a nutshell. And, and it's interesting, obviously, because the legal cases are so inextricably, inextricably bound to uh, the candidacy that we're, we're seeing the effects on both um, here. And that's why you're hearing from Trump and the rhetoric um, that he's being politically persecuted. It's also important to be factual that, you know, Jack Smith was appointed a special counsel in November of 2022, 2023, uh, tw- excuse me, 2022. And that's when Trump announced the candidacy when Merrick Garland was uh, still investigating all these cases, but uh, decided to appoint a, a special counsel, which means the shit got real. And like Trump was trying to, you know, have his candidacy, candidacy as a um, as as a uh, as a Republican nominee, Shield. kind of slow down these slow down these criminal cases. Mm-hmm. So that's the interplay between all these things that are going on, um, and and why you know why uh, Miss Haley is sticking around. So short little update, um, but uh, it, things are starting to heat up and get excited. So once the uh, Supreme Court kind of chimes in for the last time on these cases um, until after conviction. Um, that's that's what's going to be going to be happening. Post conviction is a different story. We'll, we'll uh, it's, it's a whole different story. It's going to be a whole different fight. So the fight is not only to get to trial, but to win the trial. And then after trial, what are you going to do with Trump? Right? Are, you know, is he going to be um, on, on house arrest? Is he going to be granted bail? What, what are going to be his bail conditions? Um, is he going to be able to leave the country? No. Um, is he or is he going to have travel restrict, restrictions as a convicted felon? Um, and, and, you know, we can look at the past cases, but no case has been like this before where you had a former president that committed these crimes and what the punishment is going to be. A lot of people may not like, but you know, it's, there's, there are going to be some restrictions on his candidacy up to uh, November. So I do expect at least one trial to go, possibly two at well, three now with the Alvin Bride case, which could be convicted of that, um, therein, but I don't expect him to be remanded into custody for the Alvin Bride case. Um, and that's another New York jury. And I, you know, we, we passed this prologue in, in recent, in recency. So I don't think New York is going to take it easy on, on Mr. Trump. So there you have it, folks. Oh, thank you so very much. I'm uh, also very grateful for you being able to come in and uh, give us, you know, legal insight into all the things that are going on in terms that we can understand. And um, I think that you're absolutely right. And and usually when, you know, you make your predictions because they're they're reasoned, they're not just wild guesses, you're usually right on point. And I do think that that's why uh, Haley is staying in. And also um, an interesting thing is, is that as long as she's in, the RNC cannot commit uh, financially to him. Uh, so that uh, affects his um, his finances as well. So I think that's a smart move on, on her part, too. I think that plays in our favor. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. <laughs> I was just wondering about the solvency of... The RNC's uh, finances. Um, yes, and uh, also, uh, you know, I think I think that um, the uh, Joe Biden's going to the border on on Thursday, so things are things are heating up. For hold on, let me let this part. Thing, things are things are heating up uh, on on that too. I think with Biden going to the border and having a, a bipartisan bill on the table, the pressure is going to heat up for the Republican Party, and they they're trying to. They're trying to shift the narrative, but they're not doing it's not working. I mean, because every time they say Joe Biden can do 
everything he's done, they're faced with the facts that, you know, hey, he, he's actually deporting more people than Trent did in, in, uh, in his time in office. And he, he's extended or he's optimized the executive orders as much as he possibly can without congressional, um, without congressional extension or uh, um, expansion of powers for the executive office, which is, uh, you know, the, the border bill that was passed wasn't a Democratic bill, it was a Republican bill. Um, and so they, they're, no matter what, uh, they're owning this to some extent. They can't just put it on the president, although they're trying. And one last thing I wanted to, you know, maybe somebody a little bit more savvy in, in politics can explain better. But um, from these numbers that are happening, I think it's still the effect of the of the legal cases, too. So it ties in a little bit. Um, he's not expanding uh, his his electorate. He's he's energizing his base, but it's not expanding. the people that are going to vote for him are going to vote for him. And it's that that number is not growing at all. Like you, like a, a challenger would need to see who was minus seven million votes in the last election they had. So you know, um, although you know it, it, it's not won yet, and it's certainly not certainly not certain, but um, Biden's in a pretty good position uh, in in March twenty twenty four for a November election. Absolute, um, absolutely. So thank you so much for that. And um, we um, have uh, maybe another uh, 30 minutes or so. Um, and um, we don't have to go the full um, the full 30 minutes. But um, I want to give my co-host, uh, Dr. Marshall, who is here up at, at Speaker, an opportunity to chime in on the conversation, any of the um uh, really important um, news stories and legislation that is going on. Um, again, I mentioned the uh, abortion bans, the extreme ones in states like mine that, you know, we talked about it as soon as Roe uh, was overturned, what the repercussions would look like. And now we actually have them and they are doubling down to make them even worse. But we, we have women now who have suffered, um, and some, you know, died. And, um, so I think that this is going to play a vital role in the election. And I can't even remember now because I've just been, I'm in information overload <laughs> mode now because of keeping up with the news and just trying to um, get as much information as I could about Dr. Williams so that um, I would have some great questions uh, for him. But the... Um, the Republicans, I, I saw someone, it was on one of the major, I don't know if it was one of the Sunday shows, but they were interviewed and they basically just said, uh, that's not important. You know, like, you know, women don't care about that or whatever. And I'm like, mm, we're going to find, you're about to find out. I, I beg to differ because you, you're talking about half the population of America. And for you to think that these laws and the consequences uh, from them are not going to have an effect uh, or not going to motivate a certain part of our electorate is just crazy. So, um, so, sister, if you or Dr. Marshall would like to chime in on that um, or, or, or anything else, um, like I said, that's kind of um, 
hitting our news cycle. I do love, uh, I retweeted it, that there are now journalists and people in pundits in the mainstream media like Lawrence and, um, you know, other like um, Earl Stevens is someone I follow who follows me, um, really gave, um, you know, a scolding to mainstream media. And these are not just people who are angry, you know, screaming at the media or whatever. Um, he he was in the media. He was, you know, you know, I'm a veteran. He was the editor of the Stars and Stripe. Military people, that's our newspaper. And so, you know, he took them to task on their like of attention to their duty um, as, you know, journalists, the fourth estate. It's in the Constitution. And we talk about this all the time. And so I love that we do now have um, some uh, major folks, uh, Jay Rosen and others, um, coming out and um, constantly reminding mainstream media of their failings um, and how dangerous it it is. Because these are not normal times. Like this could be the last election of our life, <laughs> of my life. People in my generation. Um, the uh, last election we're able to hold for a very long time and that people, you know, are just tissing it away going, ah, that's what you always say. This is the most important. Well, it keeps remaining important because people are not taking it serious and we're still not gaining the traction that we need to to pass, you know, progressive legislation in the state houses and at the federal level we may have a you know a democratic president and a majority in um, the senate but then we lose the house and so it ends up in a lot of um, obstruction and things not being able to move forward and then you have state houses which is where our democracy is being uh, lost um, most um, immediately and you know these abortion ban um, and other things are a direct reflection of gerrymandering done in these states. And so, you know, they're OK with not uh, having the federal uh, majority at this point because they're just working and working things out at the, the local levels. And this Project 2025, and there was an interview from the CEO of uh, the Heritage foundation where he talked about, you know, we've been talking about this for a very, very long time. And the parts that are publicly accessible are bad enough. But he, you know, informs the um, the journalist that's interviewing him that, oh, yeah, there are some parts that we we are not telling the left that we're not, um, you know, that we're keeping secret. So just imagine like the part that we can read and see is bad enough. So just know that there's more and it's worse and um, people need to take it serious. So um, so, sister, did you want to um, chime in on um any of that? <clears throat> yeah. Well, one of the things that I wish I had gotten a chance to to ask the professor is, you know, he, he said, and it was towards the end, and I didn't want to bring this up unless, uh, because I did uh, appreciate hearing about the history so much. I was really enjoying that. But he said, listen to elders, and then he said, elders listen to young folks. And I wanted to know, like, uh, what his idea of how we bridge the gap between the two because there there is a school of thought on both parts 
um, that there's a frustration um, and they do not want to talk to each other because they don't listen. And this is coming, I know, from both parties. And I say that uh, as as feeling that I am no longer in the, the young folks uh, category. And um, while I may have conversations, uh, I do know that... Uh, you know, my delivery may not always be the best, and I was just wondering what some type of lessons that might, you know, be that you know someone like I myself could could use. And the facts are not seeming to register with people. You know, I retweet a lot of news stories, and I ret- I retweet a lot of. Um, comments or posts that I agree with. But while I'm doing that, I do make sure that I go through uh, the comments. And it's because I want to get a feel of what people are saying. And, um, you know, not to make this all about Michigan, but to circle back to Michigan, which is just, it is mind-boggling to me. I'm I'm having um, a really difficult time um, understanding why uh, a United States representative would endanger and encourage the demise of our democracy um, when knowing what's at stake just for clout. Because I really, I do believe that her feelings um, of frustration and... um, uh, despair or whatever have you, however I can categorize that, are are sincere. I I feel like she has she should know enough about government. She should know enough about how everything works that this whole uncommitted campaign is demonstrably dangerous to us in a way that. Um, is disgusting, um, and uh, to 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 tell people in February, almost March, be uncommitted, and then to think that you're going to turn around and change their minds by November, especially people who have already um, started flirting with and um, being um, enticed by the Republican Party for other issues, it, it, it does not make sense to me. And um, I'm not going to be one to argue on the timeline. I would, I will have a conversation with you, and I'm not even going to argue with you about that so much, but I will make some statements. And that, that's just one thing that I wish I'd had the opportunity to delve into, but I think that would have turned into a very long discussion, and he had three minutes. So... Um, I understand, uh, and I hope he comes back again. And I know that we have people in this room that can also, you know, help me out with that. Um, Because I am um, certain that we're all having difficult conversations on the timeline, in person, or whatever have you. So, you know, those are my thoughts for right now, um, if anyone wants to chime in. All right. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. And I don't think that these questions are um, going to have like easy 
um, answers, but um, they are good uh, to discuss. I, I, I think it, it, it's going to depend on, on the people involved. Um, but as far as um, younger people listening to older people, I feel like uh, that's just a, another way of saying uh, it's not us like preaching to them, but I'm talking about um, the history um, the, the, the experience and the knowledge that we have, it is important, you know, the saying, learn from history, because if you don't, you know what, doomed to repeat it, okay? And, and, and as far as the youth, um, they bring innovation and new ideas, so um, if we can find a way uh, to, to merge those two and to have civil discourse around it. I think that we could work together, but unfortunately where we are now and, and social media isn't always the place to do that because I think a lot of times people are just, uh, they're, you know, they're married to their opinions. Um, and it's hard. And sometimes you don't even know if you're dealing honestly with people. So I don't want to, you know, go off into that. But that's a conversation we could have for a long, long time and still not have a, a clear answer. But, you know, just some di good discussion around it. But we do have a few speakers up. I want to give an opportunity uh, to get to them. And um, we'll we'll close in about 20 minutes. So I'm going to start with um LNZ, uh, Frequent Voice, um, A New Voice, B-Dubs, um, Khalil, and then Joseph, and we'll close out. And I thank you guys for joining us here. I hope you share and retweet the space. I think it has been a wonderful space today and a lot of great information. And um, so um, I'm going to turn the floor over to um, LMZ. Good afternoon, Ms. D. Can you hear me okay? I can. Okay. Um, good afternoon, Soul Sister. Um, thank you all for letting me speak in this um, last um, advocacy arena of um, Black History Month. And um, I do not want to, um, I'm not trying to pivot away from, from that in any way, but I know that we had this wonderful um, conversation um, with the professor, and I know that you said that we were going to share for this last little bit too, um, advocacy arena and news. And so I wanted to um, come up for a second um, to speak while I'm not taking a, a moment away from Black History Month. And um, this month we have 29 days because of leap year. But like you said, Black History is 365 days a year. And when we get to this Friday, it will be March, and that will be um, Women's History Month. And, um, of course, in during Black History Month, as we should, and during this um, advocacy arena space, and many people in this space, yourself, Soul Sister, Dr. Marshall, she can hear me, several others have highlighted um, myself, some of the amazing black women that should always be um noted during black history month and we have living black history right now in this space and women as well and um definitely going to try to make it through <laughs> sorry for my emotionality to the people in the space um but we are under um, 
a war on women in this country as we get to March the 1st on Friday. We are under a war on women. And um, it's really quite breathtaking and staggering um, to be living under this level of a war, this level of misogyny and misogynoir, and be on a timeline and look at the amount of ignorance behind the takes that people are saying and not really see that people have an understanding of what's really happening here. Um, and people saying things about this is about to have more babies or babies of a certain skin color or skin pigmentation and all of these kinds of things without people really recognizing what this is about. And this is about power and this is about control and this is about patriarchy and this is misogyny and misogynoir and this is a war on women. And while we have been overwhelmed with people screaming and screaming and screaming about genocide, there's actually been for just as long femicide in this world, in this country, and even in this nation. We are currently enduring a femicide. 133 women and girls are killed every day by a member of their family. Intimate partner violence is so high in this country, a woman is beaten every nine seconds. So if I talk for a minute, that's 60 seconds. I'm not good with math, but I mean, nine times seven is 63 seconds. So that's about six women are going to be beaten in a one minute that I talk about. Five women a day are killed by their husband or their boyfriend. 30% of women are first beaten and abused when they're pregnant. And the states of Missouri, Texas, Arizona, and Arkansas already currently have on their books laws. I'm sorry. It's just so overwhelming. It's, it's so overwhelming that, like Soul Sisters say, People that are supposed to be part of the big ticket Democratic Party are standing there loudly and proudly telling you and encouraging people to vote unaffiliated. While in four states, they have laws that women who are pregnant cannot divorce their abuser with no exceptions for domestic violence and people that are supposed to be part of the Democratic Party are okay if women in those four states die during their pregnancy, them and their unborn child are beaten and even killed because they're not granted a divorce. And we're supposed to understand why they're going to vote unaffiliated. I try not to center myself in AAP. I work really hard not to. Really hard not to. I'm not perfect, but I work really hard not to. But I've worked inside a domestic violence sexual assault shelter. And I'm here to tell you, the survivors in that shelter do not deserve. I've done it in the past. I'm not there now. I worked there in the past. 
the women in the shelter and the children in those domestic violence shelters do not deserve to not be able to be granted a divorce from the individual that was abusing them and harming them because people want to vote unaffiliated and thus grant a vote for Donald Trump. That, that is not fair at all. I know people personally who have had the blessing of a birth of a child because of IVF. We know people who have gone through the IVF process and unfortunately, medically and scientifically and for health reasons, it didn't work out for them. Either way, the government of states should not have the right to be making that very personal decision for people. It is not the government's right to be in the bedroom and be making the decision for families, for married couples, for single people, for members of the LGBTQ community that would like to be parents. It is not the government's right. Yeah, they, they say that and understand that in education, but not so much when it comes to our bodies and our safety. Yeah, that is horrific. It is heartbreaking. It literally breaks my heart. I know y'all have seen the people on the news and people are saying, who did they vote for in the last election? I don't care. I don't care if they did vote for Trump before. It is not right right now because there are also thousands and thousands of families who voted for Joe Biden in 2020 and they are having their appointments canceled right now as we speak. And we have people that are supposed to be Democrats telling us they're going to vote unaffiliated and encouraging people to vote unaffiliated and encouraging people to vote third party and retweeting Jill Stein's interview with Brianna J. Joy Gray today talking about, and I quote, they have a path to victory. The next thing the Supreme Court is going to take up is birth control. They've already said it. I don't know why people act surprised. I'm sure nobody in AA Advocacy Arena podcast is surprised about this because we pay attention. But people will act like they're shocked and amazed when we don't have access to birth control. And they'll say it's something about, baby. it's not just about take it, when a woman can have a baby or not have a baby. There are medical reasons. There are health reasons. There are hormonal reasons. There are conditions why women are on birth control. It, 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 yes. I was one of those people. I was yes. one of those people that yes. had to be on it for endometriosis. <laughs> and without it, I would have clotted forever and, you know, faced some catastrophic consequences and perhaps even death. Yeah. It is serious. Their, their, their approach to legislation um, is um, extremely cruel. It's, it's white Christian nationalism on steroids, the American Taliban. So, yeah, I get it. And that, and that is where I will land my plane. That is what they want. This is not about that they want more white babies and black babies. Or no, no. If you're thinking that way, you are wrong. And I said that. This is about control. This is about power, and this is a Christo-fascist way. It is just like saying the American Taliban, but running it versus instead of a, from an Islamic, a, a, an extremist Islamic point of view, that is not the true uh, meaning of the people that follow the Muslim faith. 
and, and practice it in its in, in in its genuineness and its authenticity, just like that. This is what these people are doing to uh, the people that are generally trying to be Christ-like and follow Christianity. They are extremists. They are domestic terrorists, and and they're using Christianity and twisting it to to do this. And so today, as we get closer to Women's History Month, I am deeply grieved. I am deeply grieved um, as a middle-aged woman to see this war on women um, and to know that it is a war that is going to attack and hurt all women, all women. And it will not matter if you have money, because this is the way that people are trying to excuse it and act like, well, if you're a white woman and you have money, no, 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 no. No, 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 no. You all are missing the point that they are passing laws that it won't matter how much money you have. Doctors will let you bleed out in the emergency room and will not give you the care that you need while you are dying because they will consider that helping you through an abortion and they're not going to help you. Money is not going to help you. If you have a niece in your life, a granddaughter in your life, a daughter in your life, a sister, an auntie, a best friend, a co-worker, a cousin, any of those people, we are now not, we in AAP, meaning we, the America, is conducting an active war on their well-being. This is literally life or death that you are going to keep women in domestic violence situations who are pregnant and need to be able to get divorced and deny them that. And while I can be angry and fuss and cuss if I wanted to about the the domestic I mean the domestic terrorists of the maggots and trumplicans who are coming up with this legislation, you all know where my main frustration is and that is primarily the white people but the people that call themselves Democrats who are bringing back a repeat of 2016 because they want to have a tantrum over a particular issue and instead of voting for harm reduction, instead of voting for the collective good for all of us, they're going to be angry about this and maybe possibly disrupt the Electoral College votes. And it's always something with them. So I need people to please remember that, that if Palestine went away tomorrow, tomorrow, it would be something else. There's always something with them. And that is a level of selfishness. And that is a level of self-centeredness and centering oneself that is not about the collective good. And the fact that they can ignore the war on women and young girls to still take this stance and vote unaffiliated I, I'm I, I'm not really at this second guys mad about it because I'm so tired and exhausted about it, but it does break my heart because women are going to die with this type of legislation. And with that, Miss D and Soul Sister, thank you for letting me speak in today's AAP and namaste to everybody in the space. I land my plane. Sending you lots of love and hugs because I know that this is the area in which you work as a social worker. So I, I get it and I understand all of the emotions that you expressed around it. I've had my moments and time and now I'm just like, um, suppressing them. I am in a uh, democracy warrior mode. Um, and I am just like so focused on making sure people understand what's at stake. 
um, not only just for women, but these journalists who are enabling, who are complicit in their behavior. They're helping this. And it is frightening because, you know, I spent a decade in Germany, a country who dealt with the worst, the worst aspects of fascism. Okay, they weren't the only country that went through it. You know, Italy, it started there, Spain and Germany, but they annihilated um, a lot of people. So um, I see the signs and this is where, like, you know, history should be informing us, you know, and where people's lived experience should be informing the youth who I understand have their feelings about things. But, you know, like I said, the, these one issue voters uh, have to understand uh, the bigger picture, um, because oftentimes the one issue voters just continue moving the goalposts, looking and seeking perfection, which will never happen, has never been in our politics. It is about incremental progress that many people die to achieve, just move the, the goalpost an inch, you know, but um, so I won't go on there because we do have a, for, a few more speakers, but I, I thank you for your passion and, and your insight and, and your zeroing in on that uh, particular issue, which is very important. And we should uh, never forget that, that it is, it, it is a war on women, a war on education, and these are all the hallmarks of fascism. So I thank you so very much. Um, and up next, we've got B Dubs, then Khalil and Joseph. Hi, Ms. D, thank you for allowing me to the space. Um, thank you, Soul Sister, for allowing me to the space. And, um, I want to thank you for having such a great space today. I came in late, so I caught the back end of um, Professor Williams's um, lecture that he was giving, but I definitely, definitely was happy to hear it. Um, my parents are children of Nashville. I live in the Nashville area. So um, hearing the stuff about, and I grew up, um, even though I grew up outside of Chicago, we would come down to Nashville three, four times a year growing up as my youth. And then after um, I graduated um, high school, my parents moved back down here, back down to Nashville. And so um, it's always been kind of like my second home, kind of my, my other home, my home away from home, I guess you would say. As my sister would tell me, because all of my sisters were raised here except for me, is that you're a child of Nashville, even though you grew up outside of Chicago. So, um, Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this, so my roots go pretty deep here in Nashville, plus Middle Tennessee. Um, Middle Tennessee, all the way down to Pulaski and whatnot as well, too, and up to um, up towards Gallatin area with um, Castilian Springs up there as well. Just from both. Okay, sides. now you you're talking about my um, upbringing. That's where I grew up and and went to school in in Sumner County, and it, it breaks my heart. I can't even hardly think about what's going on there now because it truly has been taken over by constitutional Republicans who are doing the most, but go ahead. Yes. No, it is definitely crazy up in Sumner County right now. You know, it's 2024. They're still scared of black boys up here in Sumner County. So I, I know um, my, my people, my parents, they live in, um, they live in Bordeaux, um, born and raised in North Nashville, off 20th Buchanan. My dad's from there. And then um, went to TSU, TSU alumnus. My mom worked to TSU. Um, so TSU runs in my blood. Even though I didn't attend the school, I went to a different school for college. 
And so I definitely just hearing all the, the, the history of Nashville is always lovely and welcoming. You know, I've had plenty of discussions with my family growing up, too, about Interstate 40 coming through Jefferson Street and breaking up Jefferson Street. And, you know, for those who didn't know, Jefferson Street, we hear often about the, the Black Wall Street we hear off my Black Wall Street in Tulsa. And I know a lot of learned a lot of people learned, too, that they're more than just Black Wall Streets in Tulsa. Well, Jefferson Street in Nashville was our Black Wall Street here. And um, even as late as like, I would say the 80s, early 90s, you still had a lot of businesses, even though the interstate did mess it up because it just messed up the continuity of the street. But um, And it was further recently decimated um, just before COVID because the tornado of 2020 tore that area two pieces. Oh, I know that very well. That My church is over there, St. John AME, right there on 21st and Formosa. They got hit. And right now it's a, um, it's a grass lot. Though so my sister, who's the pastor of St. John AME, oldest AME church in the state of Tennessee, um, I think they're talking about rebuilding. It's been sitting for a few years, obviously, but they're talking about rebuilding on that area. I had my godmother lived over on uh, 23rd and Formosa. So, you know, I know North Nashville. And I would say, at least I'll say this much, um, what I've seen in the, the rebirth of North Nashville it started on Buchanan Street, which was for as much as we, as much love and the shine that you would get on Jefferson Street with all of its good and bad parts of it. Buchanan was always the street you avoided. Buchanan was the most dangerous street, though it also had, and just to kind of coincide with that, it had multiple funeral homes on, on Buchanan Street, the black funeral homes. So, but now it's turned into the slowly, they moved the funeral homes out. They've moved slowly, very incrementally, start to move businesses back in there. I think the biggest, the shining example over there is uh, Slim and Huskies, which started by some TSU alumnus, started a pizza, essentially like a, think of like a Subway, but with pizza. For those that haven't And heard it is the bomb. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like to me, like Prince's Chicken, Slim mm -hmm. and, uh, Slim and Uske. Yes. That's that they, that I am just always amazed, um, at the, um, origin story. And, um, again, like I said, they're expanding out into, um, other, um, areas. And I'm so happy to, to see that, to know that, and to know that their roots are in Nashville and TSU. So. Yeah, oh, did, um, Professor Williams, did he touch on Z. Alexander Luby and about his house? Uh, uh, not very much. I, I okay. want to get him back here so much because like um, he just thought we have a lot of rich history here that a lot of people just don't get. And like I, I've been doing these spaces now for a long time and I am always repping my state and my city. And I know that, you know, I probably get on people's nerves about it, but we have a very rich history here. And he did, you know, speak to the um, the fact that the history is so rich that like much of the civil rights movement was born out of here. John uh, Lewis, who is my civil rights icon, I um, he got his start here. He was trained here. So um, he's just one figure, but there are many like, um, you know, Diane Nash and, oh. and others. So it, it's so much. Like I told him, he has to come back. <laughs> Definitely. I'm going to have to reach out to him myself just to take his brain a little bit because I'm always learning. I always love learning about the history, especially the history of Nashville and Black Nashville, because we know, we, as you know, too, it wasn't just North Nashville that was Black, just North Nashville stayed Black. Because, you know, my dad used to tell me about growing up how, you know, South Nashville was Black. East Nashville was the hood and Black. Only thing that wasn't Black was West Nashville. You know, and I had to laugh, too, when you mentioned about the interstate possibly going through Bell Mead. That's old slave money over there. That's old money. 
you know. Yeah, they weren't allowing <laughs> that to happen. Just like now we're experiencing like over in the Green Hill there because they, you know, the new stadium, it's, mm-hmm. um, you know, more gentrification, moving people out. And that's over more around the, the East Nashville part. And for folks of, that don't know, that's the part where Opal Renfrey's daddy's barbershop is. Very rich history there. And um, it has been gentrified and the stadium uh, takes up part of that. And the new stadium and what it does is it moves people out of that area and they are trying to find alternative affordable housing and they have been talking about uh, the Green Hills area which is a very uh, wealthy neighborhood and um, they don't want that and I um, I doubt that it will happen but you know we have to go somewhere we have to be allowed to exist somewhere especially when you take over the areas where we have been. <laughs> I 100% agree. I mean, I'd even argue to Green Hills and Bell Meads the reason they're not doing rail. Because they want to do rail here, you know, with, with uh, Megan Barry that was mayor here. That was her big thing she tried to do, and then they couldn't do it because they were they fear-mongered the, the people out there out in, out in Bell Mead that, oh, you got black people coming to your side of town. You don't want that. But then they well, also- that was also done with dark money as well. We can that that'll be another conversation for another space because the Coke um, brothers, the the Coke dark money machine, uh, did a um, a great uh, initiative here to with their fear mongering uh, to stop people from voting for things that would make their life better. Because understand that Tennessee, like many southern cities, is a place where you must have a car because we don't have public transportation. So they got people to vote against public transportation. Okay. Why? Because the Cokes manufacture seat belts and other things. And, you know, one of their major businesses is asphalt. Okay. So they didn't want their business models interrupted until they could figure out some new business models to, um, to profit from. So yes, um, I'm so glad that you came up and, and talked today. I'm going to give you an opportunity to just kind of wind up. I'm sorry for, for chiming in, but you have, you know, you, 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 you speak and it makes me think of something else. And it, it's, it's delightful to hear from you. And I'm so glad that, you know, you came in and joined. I followed you. So, um, hopefully you'll join us. We're here every Monday and, um, it's not always so Nashville or Tennessee centric, but of course I'm here. So we're always going to talk about I'm with you. And I'm with you. Just to take it out of Tennessee for a minute to kind of go back to the larger subject you're talking about as well, too, with uh, the BCF, the BCF that happened over the weekend Saturday with Trump. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) I'll say this much, at least from an optical sense, when it goes to talking to black folks, I don't want to hear any more about the you ain't black if you don't vote for Joe Biden. Because I've heard the black folks who I've heard a lot of black people, especially people toward on the right side that have been defending the comments that Trump made at that at that, at that event, which was mostly white too. It was it was supposed to be for a black outreach, but really when we, I looked in some of the details, essentially it was just a fundraiser through the Trump campaign for himself, and it allowed um, people who couldn't afford, you know, the typical Republican fundraisers where they got. 50,000 seat, you know, $50,000 plates to get into the room, $100,000 plates to get into the room. This allowed them cheap opportunity to get in to see, be in the same room with Trump, but modeled it off of black people and made it seem like it was a black event. And um, yeah, it was actually just kind of embarrassed, you know, for the, the laughter that I heard from a lot of the disrespectful comments that he made there too. And not, not so much just, you know, feeling bad from Trump, 
feeling bad for the black folks who were there a few black folks that were there and that sat there in that and then thought that that all was funny so um yeah i feel bad for them but i mean hey their time is coming they're gonna find out they're in the f around stage right now fa mm -hmm. stage the, the, the fo stage is coming in the back half of this year and from everything we're seeing right now i mean yeah i'm looking forward to november i'll say that much but and I'll yes <laughs> Thank you so much. Yes, I feel very um, optimistic about our um, our um, outcome in, in November. And it was it saddened me to see our people being used in that way. But we know that this guy, nothing is beneath him. So um, uh, saddened, but not surprised. So uh, thank you so very much. And uh, now we we have um, animated some more uh, speakers. So we'll go a little longer because uh, I have an opportunity today. Um, I think um, Khalil was next, uh, then Joseph, and then Mud Puppy, my uh, dark money sleuth and <laughs> partner in crime. So um, Khalil, uh, how are you today? <laughs> Hello, D. How are you? I'm can great, you thank you. Yes, yes, we can hear you fine. Yes, I, I've I've gotten my uh, history nerd, um, you know, feel today, so I'm good. Yeah, I I am really sorry that I wasn't able to make it. Unfortunately, Mondays are no longer a good day for me, and of course, that would be of course the day you have AA. So um, I might sometimes I'm able to peek in, but I'm not able generally to speak. Uh, it, it's, it's become a, I'm teaching most of the week. So Monday and, and Friday is like a administrative days where they, you know, we're meeting and doing things like that. And, uh, so I'm unable to, you know, really chime in and I've been chopping at the bit to do it. Um, uh, cause you guys have been covering such really important and, 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 uh, significant, uh, substantive subjects, but. I just wanted, I, I wanted to come in, of course, to say hi now that I can. I'm actually on my way home from uh, back to D.C. from New York. I mean, from uh, Baltimore. Um, and I really appreciate the idea that I can sit down in the in the car and listen to you all share such a, the, the wealth of your knowledge. To, uh, it's just so, I still so prized that, and I appreciate it. I did want to chime in on a question that so sister um, raised um, and, and and I didn't say hello to her I want to say hello to you so sister as well um, the, the the you raised a really important question for the moment uh, in this time and moment and that is why are people doing and I'm paraphrasing why are people voting uh, and operating the way they are uh, in such, in a time when when things are so precariously, you know, democracy itself is so precariously perched, um, and um, I want to say two things, and I'll say them quickly if I can. One is this: that um, the the these folks. Uh, are expressing um, their concern about what's happening in the Middle East. We, none of us are able to turn away, especially people like us, turn away from 
what we're seeing, what we're hearing. Um, we're also in, at a time where our relationship, uh, the relationship that America has with Israel, is undergoing change. It's undergoing renovation, um, and the current prime minister actions is just only kind of accelerating that. Uh, so that's something to pay very close attention to. So when we talk about the protest itself and the protest vote, you ask a, a very important question. Why would somebody who was operating in a role as a leader make these make this suggestion or you know push this particular agenda? So my response would be that it's strategy, that it is uh, a primary vote, um, it's a protest vote, right, as they perceive it. So they're seizing the moment, the opportunity to send a message to the administration about some things that's very important to them. Uh, and I really have uh, most of those folks, including the mayor, will come home in November. I don't think they have an alternative. Um, and I believe um, the fragileness of the Democratic Party um, is not what people think it is. We are fragmented, but we're not fragile. You know, we're not fragile. The Democratic Party is strong as it's been in a very long time. People confuse the fact that we have fragments within our our. our Voice, frag, voices, different voices within our, 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 our community that don't always, don't always agree, agree. But uh, come November, their, their choices will be very limited. And, and this will be a time where, you know, you, you, if you decide to play with your vote, the outcome could be devastating on January 6th. I mean, excuse me, on, 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 um, November 6th, you know, you can vote, you know, on the 5th in a way that undermines your power. But on, on November 6th, you'll know immediately what the impact of that is if it doesn't turn out as it should, as we need it to. That's one thing. The other thing is that, and, and I know you know more about this than I do, but I have family and um, I'm actually born in, in, in Detroit um, and I have family in that area, and I've been really curious. And they're not the most politically conscious folks, uh, frankly, but I've been kind of working them over about, you know, what's going on. And one of the things that did come up was, and I, I hope you can confirm this or, or tell me otherwise, is that, you know, there is a, it's a little bit of Republican um, um, mischief in that they, that there's all they've been trying to uh, there's been a, a movement of a sort a, a small group of, of Republicans in that area that have been trying to turn and convert that, that, that community um, out of the Democratic fold uh, and they seize this opportunity um, with the, the events of, 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 of the Middle East to build on something so my sense was that Tlaib's idea was to offset that by not 
acting as if nothing happened in Gaza. So the idea is to have a protest vote. It's not going to impact on the overall vote in the sense that it'll be a smaller win, but Biden will not lose. And then they will also have sent a message that it's no longer business as usual with Israel, that it cannot be. Um, and I think more and more of the world um, is beginning to recognize that, um, particularly under the under the leadership of Netanyahu, who is perhaps the worst Jewish, the worst uh, 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 Israeli prime minister in my lifetime. He may be the worst ever. He may be the Donald Trump of, of Israel. Yeah, he is, as and far so, as I'm concerned. <laughs> I think so too. I think so too. I mean, I think we'll need some time to to qualify that, right? But. I, I see a whole lot of evidence supporting it right now, you know. Um, and the other thing is, and this is the, the more important to me, actually, uh, in some sense, and that is our tone. I've really tried to pay attention to this, that even, if I disagree with someone, and you all know me, most many of you, I mean, I'm not going to holler and bark and you know, hang up and and uh, like block people and all that stuff. Um, I do block people now. Don't get me wrong. I'm not going to waste time with people who, uh, you know, who who are so contrary to, to the way I look at the world. I don't know what we have to talk about, so I'm not doing that. But I don't necessarily block people. I don't see the value of doing that. Um, I'll, I'll mute someone that I think... Uh, is becoming a nuisance, but I don't spend a lot of time doing any of that. Mostly, I like to discuss people. So I'm bringing up the tone because, again, and I know I've said this many times, and I just want to reiterate it, the importance of building instead of destroying, knocking, you know, that we're at a point where not only does every vote count, but we're trying to build in a way that... Um, because, you know, that, that, that we can persevere as well. Because what happens in, after, in, in November with, with, with Donald Trump, and I'll say it out, um, it will not be over if, once Donald Trump loses. We know that we're dealing with a fanaticism that we have not seen since the 50s and the 60s. So we're going to need to continue to build in a way that doesn't allow us to lose ground, in fact, more importantly, to educate and, and, and develop our communities in a way that we persevere, that we survive and, that, and even thrive, that we're building for our children and our, our future, the future, trying to assure a future for our children. So I just, just want to throw that out there, that it's part of the strategy, and I hope that that makes sense, and I really look forward to trying to get back and have more conversation about our tone. Um, but I'd be certainly willing to have more discussion about it. I'm probably going to lose you guys because I'm getting ready to go into a dead zone. So I'm just going to close there. Well, th but thank you. thank you. Thank you so much, Khalil. Glad that you were able to come in and, and, and speak and, and join us and listen um, for a while. And, you know, so sister can address some of those things that you brought up uh, in her closing 
um, comments. Um, we're going to go next uh, to Joseph and then Mud Puppy, and uh, we'll close it out there. So, Joseph, how are you today, my friend? Hello, Miss D. I'm fine, thank you. Hello, Soul Sister. Good afternoon. Uh, just you know, it's been a very, uh, very informative uh, space today. I've just I've enjoyed listening to about the uh, the you know important history of uh, of Nashville. Uh, I've only been to Tennessee once, and it was in uh, southeastern Tennessee near uh, near Chattanooga. So I, I um, it was very interesting to learn about some of Nashville's. Nashville's history. Um, I kind of want to piggyback a little bit on something that Soul Sister was saying a little while ago about, um, you know, and it kind of also what LMZ was touching on a little bit about um, some of these uh, people that choose to uh, vote uh, unaffiliated or have using this opportunity to do a protest vote. My first election that I voted in was 2000. And I saw people in that election do a ridiculous protest vote for Ralph Nader. I voted for Al Gore. Um, you know, he wasn't my favorite candidate. Um, you know, during the uh, during President Clinton's uh, presidency, it was clear that you know President Clinton he had you know so much more charisma and you know a lot of things you know. Al Gore just, you know, seemed almost the opposite of it. But, but I knew that policy wise, he was more in line with my values. So that's why I voted for him, you know, but I saw people, uh, you know, on the far left say that Al Gore basically wasn't good enough for them. So they voted for Ralph Nader. And guess what? We got stuck with George W. Bush. We got drawn into an unnecessary war in Iraq, you know, um, then came 2004. And, and how much really further are we uh, down the road with climate um, uh, issues not being addressed? Exactly. Al Gore probably would have been the greenest president ever. And that still wasn't good enough for the far left. Um, you know, then came 2004. I was not enthusiastic about John Kerry at all, but I voted for him because I absolutely could not stand George W. Bush. And I knew that John Kerry's views were pretty much in line with mine, you know, and what, what happened? We got stuck with four more years of Bush and we got, you know, our country's worst financial crisis since the great depression, which basically altered, uh, altered the trajectory of my career, I think, permanently because of that, because of the industry that that I work in. Um, so I really don't have much sympathy, especially for some of these young people that are, you know, want perfection that, you know, like so many people on the timeline say, your vote is not a valentine. You know, you got to you got to vote for the person that is going to, you know, be most in line with your values, who's going to do the best for you. You know, we are still feeling ramifications uh, uh, of the 2000 election. Uh, 
uh, Ingrid just sent me a DM saying we got stuck with uh, Alito because of the 2000 election, you know, because of the 2016 election when people decided to vote for Jill Stein, we got stuck with Kavanaugh. We got stuck with Amy Coney Barrett. And we are going to feel ramifications of that election for decades. So I, I have no patience at all and no time for these people that want to, you know, do their little protest votes because they're so selfish. And like LMZ said, they're not looking at the greater, they're not concerned for the greater good. Because not only do I vote for my the well-being of myself, I vote for the well-being of people that care that I care about and of course people that I don't know. You know, I'm voting for the greater good of every single person in these United States. So uh, I, you know, I, I, I just, when I see these, these chaos agents and just it popped up on my timeline a little while ago that Nina Turner is in Dearborn with Rashida Tlaib, that makes me really mad. Because in my opinion, those two are just out to cause trouble and uh, they're trying to undermine this administration at a time when, like Khalil said, our democracy is in a precarious situation and we cannot afford these ridiculous theatrics. And we know that someone like Nina Turner thrives off of chaos because that's really that's all her whole purpose in life is, is to create chaos. And uh, like what's been brought up about moving the, the goalposts, you know, look how much student debt that the president has canceled. And it's funny, she's got quiet about that. So she's moved the goalpost onto something else. So um, I'm going to land my plane before I get too riled up. And I'm just, I'm, I'm really, really, uh, you know, I had to get this out there. Um I may do a pop-up space this evening if it doesn't conflict with uh, some of our our friends that uh, sometimes hold uh, spaces on Monday evenings. Uh, there's some takeaways I have about my trip to Arizona that kind of tie into the uh, the failure of the fourth estate, and so I want to talk about those more in depth. So uh, if I do decide to have one, I'll probably give about maybe about like a half hour notice or something like that. So I'll put something on on my timeline. So, uh, thank you, Ms. D. Thank you, soul sister. And I will sit back and, uh, listen as we close out. Well, thank you so much, Joseph. And yes, please do send me your notice. I did bring up one other person who I I've heard speak in another space. Um, and glad he's joined us today. Uh, so, um, I'm going to allow mud puppy, um, my dart money friend, um, to speak and then, um, brother Chi and then my fabulous co co-host will give us her closing thoughts and we'll, uh, close it out. So mud puppy, my friend, how are you today? Hello, Miss D and Miss soul sister. I hope you guys are having a fabulous Monday. Um, I just came up here because I heard the word dark money and, you know, my little ears perked up. Um, <laughs> I actually just came up here real quick to share, and I believe some of you have already kind of seen um, this, this post slash research that I've uh, done over the weekend. But 
Basically, in short, uh, I took a look at the affirmative action case because I was just kind of interested to see who was filing amicus briefs or a friend of the courts. Um, Basically, my interpretation of amicus briefs is that, you know, certain individuals will submit them to the courts and the courts review them uh, and can use them to make a final decision. Uh, So when I went through the lawyers who had filed the amicus briefs for that case, um, I actually found that 76% of them and that's 76% of the ones who were um, on the side of, was it uh, Students for Fair Admissions, I believe, is who was, um, who brought the case. But anyway, <clears throat> uh, so I did find that about 76% of those lawyers were from the Federalist Society. And if you don't know what the Federalist Society is, um, I'll be honest, I'm not even entirely sure what it is. I think it's just like a legal, you know, association for lawyers, but they've got a lot of money. Um, And the most important thing is that the co-chair of the Federalist Society is Leonard Leo, who I'm sure many people have heard me talk about him. Um, so I just feel like somewhat, I don't feel that all hope is lost, but I do feel like there are a lot of Federalist Society lawyers who end up being judges and they impact the outcome of these cases. Um, I think a great example is the case that just came out of Alabama, with the IVF treatments, um, the one of the judges, at least, uh, who said that, you know, IVF will no longer be allowed in the state of Alabama, uh, was a member of the Federalist Society or associated with them. And he was also the attorney or the general counsel for the Alabama Republican Party. Um, so I just wanted to bring that to everyone's attention. I did look at another case as well. Um, Gosh, which one was it? It was the Alabama redistricting case. I was just curious as well about who had filed briefs for that case and found that 81% of those lawyers were associated with the Federalist Society or they had, you know, Federalist Society listed on their their uh, bios on their websites. Um, so that is something that I think we all need to be aware of uh, because it almost feels as if the fix is in. Um, so I'll share my my post if you're interested um, on you know some of those findings. But I just wanted to bring that to people's attention because oftentimes I feel like we're talking about Trump and we're not talking about what's going on in the background and what's going on in the background, in my opinion, is more dangerous than Trump. And that is why I appreciate you because that too is my thought process. And I um, spent a lot of time last year um, having spaces 
talking about dark money because the the former guy and some of the mouthpieces that we see, the lawmakers and these people, their talking points are being driven by uh, Leonard Leo, the Heritage Foundation, um, and all of them belong to the um, Council for National Policy, which is the big umbrella of dark money, of right wing um you know, dark money. Uh, the Heritage Foundation, I, I've mentioned this before, uh, they are the authors of the Project 2025. They are also the um, um, authors of the talking points that are being used to impeach um, uh, Secretary Mayorkas. They, they, you know, wrote an essay. It's on their timeline from February of last year. And what the House Republicans are doing now, uh, could, it was just lifted straight from there. These are the people, the, the donors, they have the money. So they instruct the people who have the positions on what their positions should be. So dark money is always a very, very important part of this conversation. And I never just look at the characters who are mouthing the know that it is being animated by larger entities and you know and nelson's shadow network um is a great place to start and having that understanding and i appreciate uh, like you when i see things going on i look at these packs and i i'm um i wish lmz was still up here at speaker but just this weekend she sent me an article um out of uh north carolina they have a contest going on there and there is a dark morning group called uh, justice for all that was just um, formulated like last month. So there's not enough information around them. And a lot of times um, we have to wait until, you know, they file taxes and after things are done. But you can be sure that this ta these tactics that they are using are not new. They have just uh, perfected them. Uh, so they are running ads for a number, another Democratic candidate um, so um, against one Democratic candidate. And when you start to look at this, um, um, where they're spending their money and who they're doing it for, they are spending money for Democrats uh, who cross party lines to vote with them on some harmful stuff. And North Carolina is another state like Tennessee that is instituting and, and, and Florida and Texas that is instituting some very fascist laws. And um, also remember that North Carolina is one of the states where the balance of power shifted because one Democrat changed their party affiliation and gave them that power. They uh, some of these Democrats that they are funding and helping um, also gave them uh, the votes they needed to override the Democratic governor's veto of some things. So pay attention, folks. We have to continue to pay attention. So um, thank you so much, Mud Puppy. And um, I am always um, interested in your um, research, your dark money research and, and the work that you do and, and continue to look at it. I'm glad you came up and shared that with us. And I hope other folks um, keep their eyes open and, and understanding of that. Uh, so up next, we've got Brother Chi and then Soul Sister. Thank you very much for this, this opportunity. I just wanted to say um, a comment was made by the speaker before this one 
regarding um, Rashida Tlaib. I mean, some things are just not always politics. She's watching her people being massacred, being a, a genocide, babies, children, women, old people. Okay. And I. Okay. I think, hello. Okay. If you could kind of wrap it up there, because this is a conversation. We had this, um, a lot of com in depth conversation about this last week, and we can have some more, I'm but I don't want to do it on the tail end. I'm okay. just speaking to the, the, the comment that was made. I don't know much about Nina Turner, but I think it's wrong of you to speak against uh, Rashida Tlaib. Everything doesn't have to be po political. This is her family, her people. And if it were your people, you would be uh, doing the very same thing. That's all I want to say. I appreciate your comment and we understand her affiliation and where she is coming from, but she is also a Congresswoman. And um, in, in my, like, People say everything isn't about politics, but see where I stand and my viewpoint, everything actually does connect to politics because these people are in offices. They um, are have the ability to pass laws and things that dictate um, how we live, what whether we get clean water and all of those um, things. So um, I think that what they're doing is like, I understand that those are her people, but there are, there's um, a lot of ways of going about things. So I understand her passion around it, but what I don't understand or appreciate is that because she is a Congresswoman, I'm, I'm, that she- I'm, but This is my time to talk, so if you don't mind. She's, she's a human being. Excuse me. I it is our I, space and it, it, is, it, it is Misty's space. Exactly. So whether it's your turn to talk, what you do is you respectfully listen. And then you say, if I can make another comment, you don't run this space. I'm so sorry. Exactly. And so, uh, Joseph, if you, you want to respond, but like I said, we've had this conversation before and I'm not going to do this um, with people because it it is nuanced. I understand that. But um, like I said, what she is doing is harmful uh, because what a lot of people like the black people who were down there clapping for Trump while he was dissing them. That's also harmful because what it does to a lot of people is it. um disenfranchises them. Sometimes they become apathetic uh, because uh, it shows uh, that um, it, it makes them feel as though they, they don't count and that their uh, policy, that their their votes don't matter. And in some cases they don't because they have been gerrymandered and their power have been taken away. And the sad truth of the matter is, is that those people who are rightly protesting uh, the death of their loved one and their relatives or what whatever, um, if they mess around and cause Democrats to lose power, um, not only will their relatives continue to um, be harmed, but they themselves will be harmed and thrown out of this country. So we understand that here and we can have nuanced conversations, but that's not a conversation I'm going to have when I'm trying to close a space. So, um, and I'm going to allow my um, fabulous co-host, Soul Sister, to um, have some final words. And uh, she can speak to it because she does live in Michigan. She grew up in the area where Toledo, Toledo Rashid is from. So continue, Soul Sister. Thank you, um, Misty. A few things before I go to Dearborn. Um, while the professor was speaking, 
I looked up black statues in Detroit, and then I looked up black women statues, and I was very sad. <laughs> I just really wanted to say that. Like, I was like, oh. I know. I um, It's so <laughs> few. Like, I totally forgot about Wilma Rudolph's uh, statue. But, yeah, it is sad. It is very yeah. sad. Yeah. And then I just wanted to comment on um, LMZ being emotional. I don't. I don't want you to apologize for that. Um, and I, this is why. It's not centering yourself. You're in a unique position of being on the front lines of this fight of advocacy due to your work. And when I say front lines, I mean like literally front lines. You're literally there hearing what's being said in the House. You... you of of you know of, of the state legislator legislature there in in North Carolina and and there is a difference between reading about it and actually sitting and and having to live with it and fight against it actively presently and i know that from my work with the UAW and i know how draining that is and i know how it impacts you in a way that you're you just like I can't understand why people are not paying attention to this. And while I am removed for that from that now, I uh it's still I still carry it with me uh in regards to what I'm passionate about and why I'm passionate about these things because I remember um there is a soul triggering effect on me from years of being in the battle on the front lines. I, I know where I was standing when right to work happened. I know who was standing next to me, you know? I mean anyway, I'm I'm okay. <clears throat> Moving on. Um I I I want I I know um Khalil, Brother Khalil is not in the space right now, but I hope he gets an opportunity to listen back. It's not that I feel that we are fragile. I do understand that we are fragmented. But as Geechee has pointed out, and many others, but, you know, just last week, I believe it was Geechee that pointed out how losing any major sector of the Democratic vote um, would be um, a losing opportunity for us. And so that is, it's not that I think we're, oh, we're so fragile, we're going to break. It's that when you're actively, um, encouraging a break, that's bad. That's, oh, Khalil, oh, I, I, I see a message. He's still here. Yay. It, that's, that's my concern. It's not, it wasn't that I thought they were fragile. So I just really wanted to clear that up. And and he's very correct um, in his conversation with his family. I was reading a Wall Street Journal article earlier, um, <clears throat> and they were talking about the inroads that uh, the Republican Party was able to make with the Arab and Muslim community, um, I, you know, before even 2016, but definitely afterwards. Uh, and, you know, it, it's that whereas they target uh, mainstream America, mainstream voters, I guess, um, your average voter uh, with crystal fascism, 
It's the same type of talk. It's the same type of scare tactics that are also being used in the Arab and, and Muslim community um, where there are obvious, and this is not something that I am saying, this is something that is been written about, and this is something that you can look up anywhere. Uh, you can go to many timelines here, many Facebook groups, or just talk to someone from the community. They are um, There are prejudices and biases that they hold against certain groups, and primarily um, it was the... Uh, Embracing, embracing by the Democratic Party, um, including Governor Whitmore, uh, with the inclusivity of the LGBTQI community and um, ensuring that the rights are secured and protected. That is something that does not necessarily mesh with um, what their foundational uh, beliefs are as a community and also as um, based on the religion. So it, these tactics are being used in, in very similar ways, just different words to to uh, encourage them. So yes, yeah, some of them were already breaking from uh, the Democratic Party and had done so in the 2016 election and uh, the 2020 election and uh, even in 2022, um, you know, it was very, uh, it wasn't as close as people thought that it was going to be for Governor Whitmer, but it was closer than it should have been, um, seeing as who her opponent was. Um, <clears throat> so I think that I really want to stress that the administration has been extremely um it has shown that they've been extremely active in trying to resolve um, what is happening in Gaza. I I, I know that um, one of the things, one of the criticisms that keeps coming up is like they, they feel they're being ignored. They feel that they are being, um, uh, that, that, that nothing is happening on behalf of watching those relatives and um, understanding that their family is in definite danger and harm's way. Uh, Blinken has been over there many times, several times, over and over again. Uh, President Biden has had numerous deep discussions trying to resolve this, and, and, and I do feel like they are inching closer, but I, what has to be remembered is that he is the president of this United States. He is not in any way a, in a governing capacity of Israel or Palestine. And therefore, because of that, he is limited in his abilities. The idea that this executive order can happen and it will just wipe the slate clean is tremendously um, misunderstood and it's misinformation that can happen because of the way the funding has already been divvied out through legislation, through Congress. That is the reason why we keep reiterating that it would take an act of Congress. I know some people are angry that uh, 
he did not agree to one of the latest resolutions. I think it was over the weekend, Saturday or Sunday. I, I'm not sure. Uh, you know, of ceasefire because it was unconditional, meaning that we would not get back any of the hostages that have been taken. And that is extremely important to this administration. And it, w- it should be important to everyone. Why isn't it important that we get back these hostages? Why is only one side of this important? Why can't I say it was a terrorist attack that happened on October 7th and that, yes, if there are inhumane uh, tactics being used by Israel, that too is wrong. I can say that, and I refuse to apologize for it. I've been blocked for saying it, and I got, I'll wear that block like a cape, okay? Because that's how I feel about it. Two things can be true at one time, and those two things for me is very true. Now, I grew up and went to high school in Dearborn, okay? No one, including Joseph, was diminishing what Rashida Tlaib and many Arab Americans in Dearborn are feeling. These are my friends. These people are, I've known their families since ninth grade. Uh, okay, that means nothing to you if you don't know how old I am, but you know, I'm 51. Okay. Uh, it, this is not, no one's playing at this. My heart goes out. I think if if people who have been here in this space know that I told the story about one of my, I mean, very good friends, very good friends, of why he feels so strongly about Palestine. They buried his grandmother alive, not recently, many years ago. It, it's, it, it but it, it, it's. It's a gut-wrenching, visceral, actual, physical reaction. for some, And I get that. I do understand it. I do believe that Rashida Tlaib has a responsibility as a, a, a legislator, as a leader, and a community figure to also iterate, say, I feel your pain. I share it because it is my pain as well. It is my family's pain. But here's the thing. And maybe she doesn't use the word but because people hate that word, right? So she would figure out a different way to say it better than I am right now. And she should, being in the capacity that she's in, be able to say, this is what is happening. If you understand bureaucracy, think of how bureaucracy works in our country, in our state, in our city, in our neighborhood. Now imagine that on a global international scale with two parties that do not in any way really truly want to reach an agreement, let alone a two-state solution, because I've heard it said from both sides. That is what is being criticized here. That that alone. And I'm actually quite offended that you would think that we would allow here in Advocacy Arena, note the name, Advocacy Arena, to get on the mic and diminish the feelings 
of something as tragic as war and the lives being lost because of it. I'm actually kind of pissed. I am that offended that that's what you think happened. So let me correct the record so it can be recorded in this space that that is not what happened. Now, I know Brother Khalil said that my tone has to be respectful. And I'm sorry, I apologize, because I'm not sure that I was being necessarily disrespectful, but I wasn't being as kind as I should have been or could have been in that moment explaining. But if you watch my timeline, and if you notice if I'm in here, I rarely disrespect anyone if it's not that former guy. I'm going to be honest with you. I think it's also tragic that Rashida Tlaib would couple herself with Anina Turner. She might as well just spit on any Biden supporter, period, because that's how I take that. You can be firm in your stance without undermining and basically backstabbing the only administration that has supported the lives of all people. It is foul, and I will not apologize for that. That is foul. Yeah, that was obviously someone who don't know how we roll here. Um, no, I mean, I mean, have no being with Nina Turner as well. Ex- Those, exactly. Yeah. And and also once the comment was made that everything is in politics. Mm, yeah, yeah, it is. it is. And that is the sadness that that people tend to think that because it all does everything that we do. From the um, air, the quality of the air, the water uh, that we drink, it all is governed by politics. And that's my fear. And that is my um, mm, anger uh, with her behavior at this point is because a lot of people don't get that. And and she is further she's making it more difficult for people to get that because you, as you said, two things can be true. Like no one is in favor of people being um, killed, uh, slaughtered, denied um, um, human, um, you know, humanitarian (laughs) aid and those things. No one is in favor of that. But war is not lineal, uh, linear. It is um, very, very, um, you know, there are always, um, what are they called? Um, the casualties of war are not just the soldiers. Let me just say that. And this is Absolutely. as a veteran. <laughs> it always um, affects communities and, and people, uh, other people's lives. And and uh, so um, Geechee yeah. did come up. So I, I'm going to okay. give him the grace because I, I know he got some sense. And <laughs> oh, yes. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Geechee. Uh, See, this is what I'm talking about. This is why I love you. I, I really don't have much to add. I was just going to say I'm currently accepting African kidneys. So just oh, think my the, goodness. <laughs> the, the, the weirdos can be weirdos, but um, y'all did a great job. I learned a whole lot today from this space. Um, and that's basically all I have. Um, I just want to make sure y'all know that I'm still accepting African kidneys and I will be taking them the next three weeks. 
Thank you for that lev that moment of we levity. We that levity. Exactly. And those who get it, get it. Yeah, because, you know, there is always one in the crowd. And obviously, like I said, these are people. Sometimes there are people who just come into spaces, whether that's, you know, Twitter spaces or live in real life spaces uh, to be contrarian, uh, you know, and um to be argumentative we we aim for discourse here doesn't always mean we agree but we try to suss things out um and to increase civic engagement and again like you know to me more so than his comment about uh Rashid is you know like everything ain't about politics like that's offensive to me <laughs> so I'm trying yeah, to teach I, I'm people with you, Ms. I, I, because I always say everything is about politics because that's exactly what I believe as well. So, yeah, because it starts in our backyard and, and that is the, the shame, um, and, um, and all that is happening is because it further, um, entrenches that that ideology and that thinking that people don't have to be involved like they only have to you know get involved or pay attention every four years and it, it is that's why we're here now that's why we keep screaming over and over again this is the most important election of our lives because people still don't get it like civic engagement like black history is 365 days of the year because it matters and it all affects our lives. Politics is infused in everything that we do or we're able to do or that we can't do. So I'm going to let you wrap it up and then I'm just yes. going to close. <laughs> I just want to say in, in closing, I want to say um, it is unfortunate when we do have uh, people come in and get on the mic and, and try to be argumentative and contrarian, uh, actually, that was worse than both of those words. Um, but those are words that I will not say in this space. Anyway, uh, without understanding what your spaces historically have been about um, and, and how you manage your space every single time you hold one. Um, so I, I think that part of my issue with and why I took such great offense is that um, if you had seen something or heard something that felt off, you would have stopped it the exact same way you stopped that person. Um, and that is because in advocacy arena, we are about having meaningful dialogue, um, educational discussion, and advocacy for human and civil rights. And that is not going to change um, unless you change, which I doubt, I do not see it. Uh, democracy it runs through your veins and you have instilled it and you continue to encourage it each and every space. And if I have to get up here and play the bad cop, I will, I do not mind. Thank you very much. I'm so happy that you guys came to this space today. It was delightful. Uh, it was informative. And it was engaging, as always. And I look forward to having more discussions with the professor. Thank you so much. Well, I thank you, and I'm honored to have you as my standing co-host by my side and being my bad guy uh, or gal 
any day of the week um, because I try to play nice, but I am human. And like I said, I, I was very offended by that, you know, everything ain't about politics kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is. <laughs> and the fact that um, I know because, you know, I'm also a, a news junkie and, and nerd that um, some of these people have been plied uh, to uh, in a political way by dark money like Mike Flynn and his reawaken America tours have oh my god uh, yes I'm so sorry remember I told you about that he was one of the people that went and spoke with the Arabs in in um, Michigan um back in 2022 22 thank you so so sorry didn't mean to interrupt yep no but yeah that's what I mean yes and uh, they started uh, right after this um, election that uh, President Joe Biden did win, um, trying to um, sow seeds. And, and keep in mind that Mike Flynn is an ex-CIA um, guy uh, who uh, is very adept at psyops. And we have a psyop going on here in our nation that is designed to disenfranchise people, uh, to have them focused on things that, yes, are important to them, but uh, misinformed. And keep in mind that, you know, he uh, dined with Putin and his gang and that much of the misinformation disinformation that is going on is straight out of Russia. It is Kremlin propaganda, as our uh, Speaker Emeritus Pelosi said so famously, all roads lead to Russia. And the dark money helps to further that. And if people don't get that, then <clears throat> they really are missing the crust the conversation and um you know what is going on and they are being played they are the subject of the of the op and that reawakening uh reawaken america tour has been going across this country and i know that it's working because what they find is these common themes and uh things that they can slide into different demographics like the um student loan that one issue voting that was Russian propaganda, the rep reparations, Russian propaganda, not that it's not real and needed, but the way that some people were embracing it and holding on to only that one thing uh, being, you know, like the reason they weren't voting for Democrats. That's Russian propaganda. The gun um, things, uh, these laws and, and, and things, dark money and Russian propaganda, like they sent people over here. They don't even allow their citizens still to carry guns like we do here. But they sent people over to um, partner with the NRA, which happy to say Tisha James uh, took them out, too. So uh, this is the year of accountability. It is um, going to be we are in the um, uh, election of our life. And it's so important that we. Uh, be engaged um, and to be to be at our top performance and uh, to respond um, in the best way we must be informed. So that's what I seek to do um, in this space that I hold every Monday. And I thank all of you for being such loyal supporters and, and joining and making your contributions um, and understanding what's at stake because our democracy is at stake. And that's very personal to me, and it should be to all of us, um, because um, 
life under fascism will not be pleasant for anyone. Um, and I, I told you this story, so sister, because, you know, I do a lot of ride shares and, um, I, I had the experience last week of having, uh, and I live in a, a place where we have the lar largest Kurdish population in the nation. So it is a very diverse um, community that we have here, regardless of what's presented, you know, and seen um, by other people, uh, the media, and certainly our state house is not represented representative of the diversity that is here in our city and in our state. But the Iraqi driver, we were just chit-chatting and talking, and he, he talked about a, a town where um, his family lived. Um, he had come here, I think, from New Jersey or somewhere, um, and it's a small kind of rural town that has basically grown up um, and expanded because of a, a, the an automotive company being there, Nissan. And um, that's where his uh, grandchildren were going to school and he was uh, very upset because you know too that we had a large um, anti-science movement here uh, during COVID which still carries over you know I, I mentioned earlier in the space measles outbreak <clears throat> proliferating in Florida I pray that it doesn't come here but you know you still have people we still are dealing with aspects of um, this anti-science um, and COVID um, happening, but in the community that he lives in Smyrna, um, there is a lot of, you know, the, the young kids are getting what the, um, what is, is it RSV or I can't remember the respiratory illness that are affecting so many kids, which is a residual effect, um, from COVID and, and like of vaccinations and, and things. So a lot of the kids and teachers are, are sick quite often there. And, um, he was upset that his daughter was not uh, being more firm in um, her speaking out and speaking up. So I'm thinking, okay, okay, I understand that. It's true. Um, but then in the same breath, or the same conversation, I should say, uh, he talked a little further, and then he said something about them Democrats. Oh, my goodness. Da, 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 da. And then I was like, oh, are you kidding me? You know, like, okay. I think it was a Republican that started the war falsely in your country, yet you think the Democrats are bad. So, um, but I think that it's because conservatives hone in on the conservatism of a lot of other um, countries, religions, and people who come here. And I, I told you personally, but I want to say it in the space, I also think that what is going on with some of the people who are rightly concerned about their people, you know, dying and, and, and being in the situation that they're in there is that, you know, their protest votes, so to speak, or uncommitted is their ideology. Keep in mind that most of European countries operate under a parli parliamentary type of government. And I think that they view, um, even though they know we don't have it here, they still respond in that same kind of way. Because in these countries where they have those parliamentary types of systems, uh, people who otherwise would um, disagree, they have multiple parties. Uh, and certainly we've had a, seen a great push in this country for, um, you know, more than a two-party um, political system. And it would be great, but those parties need to do the work of being built um, and not 
trying to go into a party that exists and co-opted as the Tea Party did to the Republican Party. And I feel that the um, uh, extreme progressives, uh, because I will say again and again that the Democratic Party is a progressive party, how they are trying to come into the Democratic Party and co-opt it. If you don't agree, build your party, build a party. And we have the no labels and all of these things like our democracy is fragile. People need to pay attention. And the only way that we come together is to build uncomfortable coalitions to save us all, <laughs> to be able to have further uh, conversations and laws passed that will help us all. And the party that is likely to win, if we don't, is not interested in that. You are able to march and protest today because we live in a democracy and if we don't, your voice won't matter. And this also includes the mainstream media. So I just want to say that. And again, thank you all for coming, joining in the conversation today. And I'm going to leave you with the words of the late great representative John Lewis, which keep me hopeful, keep me grounded. Um, and that is do not get lost in a sea of despair. Be hopeful, be optimistic. Our struggle is not the struggle of a day, a week, a month, or a year. It is the struggle of a lifetime. Never, ever be afraid to make some noise and get in good trouble, necessary trouble. So that's what we come here and do every Monday. We make noise. We get in good trouble. We inform um, one another um, and hopefully it leaves us all inspired to continue our fight for democracy. And I thank you all for allowing me to do that, to join me and support me in that effort every Monday. So sister and I, um, you know, again, like I said, we're seeking to increase civic engagement. And we feel that the best way to do that is by having citizens who are well informed. So I thank you for coming to be informed, be inspired. And you guys inspire me. I learn from you. We learn from each other. And that is what it's going to take. Um, and I like to start my week off that way. And I, I thank you all for helping me to do it. I'm wishing you all a great, fantastic week ahead. Um, and um, encourage you to continue making noise and getting in good trouble. When you see something wrong, say something, and that's the good trouble that he was speaking of. And so that's what we try to do here. And I just want to wish you all peace and blessings for a fabulous rest of the day and week ahead. <laughs>